Hey man, got a quick question for you. What would you do with an extra hundred thousand dollars? No, you don't have to go embarrass yourself on TV at a wrestling camp. No, you don't have to win any challenges out in the desert. All you've got to do is go to savewithconrad.com. You may not realize it, but there has been six figures of savings hiding in your own house. No, it's not in your drunk drawer. It's not in your attic. It's not in your basement. It's in your mortgage. You're overpaying your single biggest bill and you may not even realize it. Here's a quick test for me. Do me a favor. Take your monthly payment and multiply it by 360. That big, scary number you're looking at, that's what you're really paying for your house. That's what we call the total of payments. When you add up all 30 years of your existing mortgage, that big, scary number is what you're actually paying. And when you see that, you'll realize, uh, Houston, we have a problem. But don't worry. If you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out SaveWithConrad.com while Dave Silver revolves it. Okay, that was corny. But the point is, I can get you out of debt faster and do it with cheaper monthly payments. If you're in a 30-year loan right now, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. I'm routinely helping people get interest rates in the twos and cut years. You hear me? I said years of unnecessary house payments off of their loan. And here's my question. If you could keep paying roughly the same monthly payment, but pay your house off years faster, why wouldn't you do that? Keep more of your own money. And really think about what it takes to save $100,000. Now, if you don't do this, you're going to work for that money, pay taxes on it, and then just give it away. Why would you do that? Set yourself up for real financial peace, for real financial freedom, and get rid of your single biggest bill, your mortgage. By the way, we're routinely helping our listeners get rid of all their credit card debt. And I'm talking about mean, nasty, ugly credit card debt that's 18, 19, 20, 21% interest. If you've made a minimum payment on your credit cards this year, you owe it to yourself to run the numbers right now at SaveWithConrad.com. I'm routinely helping people pay their house off faster by getting rid of their other consumer debt, like car loans and credit card debt. They're saving five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. Oh yeah, still going from a 30-year loan to a 15-year loan. Now you don't need perfect credit to do this. You don't need money out of your pocket to do this, but you do need to spend 10 minutes right now. Just let us run the numbers for free at savewithconrad.com. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't help you out, we won't waste your time. We've recently been able to approve credit scores in the 500s. And oh yeah, you even get to skip your next two house payments. So why wouldn't you do this? It's a no brainer. It's savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And did I mention we're licensed in 40 states? Yes, that probably includes your state too. Check it out right now at savewithconrad.com. There's no better time to say I love you and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Stephen is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Stephen has a ready for love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Stephen won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better service friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. 
Interest-free financing is available online too. And that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home. It's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? It's a beautiful day here in the I Hate Steven Singer broadcast studios. Hi, <laughs> atop Carter Ridge in the beautiful, sprawling, absolutely fantastic landscape of Cody, Wyoming, the rodeo capital of the world where everybody in this state hates Steven Singer. I bet even Kanye West hates Steven Singer. I mean, everybody in Cody hates it. Everybody in Huntsville hates Steven Singer. And of course, you know, because you listen to this show, why we hate Steven Singer and we're proud to have Steven on board. Steven's been a longtime sponsor for us and uh, he's a big listener to this show. So we appreciate a, him being a listener, B him being a wrestling fan. Most of all, see him supporting our program here. And I'm getting DMS left and right for guys who were making good deals and good decisions for the rest of their life. Thanks to Steven Singer. Making marriages and relationships better. One piece of fine jewelry at an exceptional price at a time. Uh, by the way, we should give you a heads up today. Uh, that was not a commercial, but there are a lot of them. Uh, and that's why adfreeshows.com exists. So if at some point you say, oh man, I'm overloaded today. Uh, you should check out adfreeshows.com. Not just because you get these shows early and ad free, but there's a ton of other bonus content over there, including maybe our most fun thing we've done yet. A video project with you, Eric fans are going to love this. Are they not? Yeah, I'm going to give you a little tease because I was working on it last night and it's not, you know, it sounds easy and it was your idea. Once again, another great idea from the fertile mind of one Conrad Thompson, the man who makes money in his sleep. <laughs> so, <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, you know, the idea was, you know, to respond to some of the really, you know, vicious and, 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 and negative tweets that come my way. And I get a lot of them, you know, surprisingly enough. <laughs> 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 so I'm playing around with them, you know, but I want them, to, I want it to be fun. I want to have fun doing it. I want to have fun. I want, I want people to have fun watching it. And I'm just playing around with it a little bit, but I hope to have one posted the very first one, possibly this weekend, first of the week at the latest. And then I want to, I want to do another one of those Eric fires back things. I've been kind of quiet. I've uh, been sedate. Well, I need to, fi I need to fire up a little bit. I got to tell you, that is, uh, the piece of business that we got the most positive feedback about. And Eric, I'm ready. You know, you want to just go ahead and throw Eric Bischoff shoot interview or someone, someone sh blank shoots on Eric Bischoff. You got tons of options. So I'm ready. Uh, we're ready for the next installment. I just didn't want to overload you with mean tweet receipts, which is what we're calling this video project. That'll be going up in a few days over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, and then, yeah, it sounds like we're doing another Eric fires back. So we're going to have a do lot that of next week. I'm in the mood. I got to fire back on something. Well, you're going to probably need it after today, because today's topic is road wild 1998. 
As a reminder, we're coming off of Bash at the Beach 98, which is the biggest celebrity moment of WCW and the most successful. Uh, one of the biggest pay-per-view buy rates in company history. It's Hulk Hogan teaming with Dennis Rodman to take on Diamond Dallas Page and Carl Malone. Bill Goldberg, fresh off winning the world title less than a week later, is uh, defending his title against the former Mr. Perfect. Bret Hart is working with Booker T for the television title. Rey Mysterio was working with Jericho for the cruiserweight title and the giant is defeating another celebrity, Kevin green. We've talked about that show before, but my goodness, when you look at that in a vacuum, is that peak WCW? Do you think bash at the beach? 98. Gosh, it's funny. You said that I was just thinking about that this morning. What was the highlight? Like if I, uh, honest to gosh, uh, honest to gosh, listen to me. I'm such a good boy. Um, I was thinking about this this morning, about an hour ago, you know, sucking down some coffee, getting ready to fire up for this show. And I was thinking, what was the best, what was the peak period? Not just financially and not just in terms of really feeling the energy and, 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 and the momentum, um, but, you know, all around, what was the peak time? And I really do think it was either July 98 or August 98. Things really started to go downhill from there. Just again, not, not, we've talked about this so much. I don't, I don't even want to talk about it again. In fact, I freaking refuse. But when you have big company, big corporations merger and you have, you know, cultures clashing as a result of that merger, corporate cultures, I mean, um, Everything downstream from that is affected, and we were beginning to become greatly affected by the merger starting around July and August of 98, but it really manifested afterwards in the, in the fall. So I would say July, August, June, July, August, the summer of 98, if I had to pick my favorite time to go back, if I could relive any moments in WCW, it would probably be a moment during that period of time. How about this from the July 20th, 98 edition of the observer. This was by far the biggest week in the history of the promotion. As not only did they do their second best pay-per-view in company history, but over the eight day period between July 6th and July 13th, they ran six house shows for more than $2 million worth of gate or $335,000 per event, which is just a ridiculous figure plus another 782,000 in merchandise, not to mention an estimated figure of more than six and a half million from the pay-per-view. So you're talking about a $9 million week, which puts the Monday night war ratings war into perspective about what it really means. Aside from being the weekly measuring stick of everyone's ego, my goodness, Eric, I mean, I know by this point. We are back and forth in the ratings war. The 83 week streak is over, but $9 million in a week. This is, this is fucking unreal. Wow. That was pretty cool. $9 million in a week. That's the most money I've ever made. How about you? Uh, You probably beat, you've probably beat that number. I bet. No way. No way. Dude, that's, that's rare air, man. I mean. I can't imagine, and I'm not saying this to be dismissive because you know, I love the old stuff, but Jim Crockett promotions never made 9 million in a week and AWA never made 9 million in a week. And you know, Graham never made 9 million in a week. I mean, I'm sure Vince has, but 
when it comes to wrestling promotions that made had a nine million dollar week, uh, that's two ever. You know, and I I think the other thing that's interesting that you pointed out in in what Dave wrote is. It's not just the rating, you know, ratings are, and it's, it's funny. The guy who says the ratings are just a you know, way for everybody to check their egos every week or compete with the, I mean, that's, a, that's another snarky, you know, typical Dave Meltzer comment. Um, look, ratings are important, but today who's comparing ratings today? Who spends more time talking about ratings today? Because the information is available, by the way, all of the information that you, you, you get, you know, from, from Dave Meltzer's dirt sheet or online is available. It's a public domain. You, you have to take the time and search it out. You can subscribe to the same people that he subscribes to, and you can get the same information this, at the same time, all the wrestling quote unquote journalists get it. So there's no magic to, to reporting on ratings. They publish them and anybody who wants to talk about them can and does. But it's funny to hear Dave make a reference about, you know, readings are nothing more but a way you guys can compare each other's egos or whatever he said. And now today, here we are in 2020, what, some 22 years later, and <clears throat> that's all Dave and his little Jackson Iffin cohort, Brian Alvarez, can talk about is, is ratings and comparing to WWE. They're doing the same thing that they were critical of me doing 22 years ago, and they're doing it today. So I, I get a big kick out of that. But the point I wanted to make really the, the, the tangible aspect of what I wanted to say was that ratings are nothing more than an indicator. They're not the most important, they're an important thing, but they're not the most important thing. Obviously revenue is the most important thing. And while my ego, cause I do have one and I certainly did have one back then. It might've been a little, uh, uh, <clears throat> out of control once in a while back then, but in 98, but for me, it was always about the money. And would I have rather had, you know, in 98 have WCW completely dominate the ratings and make it clear to the world that WWE was number two and they're never going to come back to number one again. Sure. A part of me would have liked that because that's an accomplishment, but if I would have had a choice between having that dominant weekly rating and winning the war every week, uh, which was really, I, I think the dirt sheets probably fed more off of that than I did, to be honest, because that's what drove a lot of their readership is the, the discussion of the Monday night wars, the battle between the two companies. If it weren't for that, those dirt sheets probably would have disappeared a long time ago. But for me, I would have rather I'd rather have it neck and neck every week. I'd rather have a tight race every single week for an extended period of time because when both companies are doing big numbers, the industry is as a whole is healthier. We saw that during the Monday Night Wars. I think one of the reasons today, not the own by the way, there's a small reason that we have the success that we have today in terms of networks, you know, licensing professional wrestling and, and, and AEW and the success they're having on TNT and obviously Raw and USA is because of the healthy advertising environment we created by elevating the entire industry as a whole, not just WCW, not just WWE, but when both companies rose, you know, with, with a high tide, you know, and they're both boats started floating a, a lot higher and it attracted the attention of the advertising community. And they started looking at professional wrestling as not just this weird little, you know, cult type weird 
not comedy, but comedy, not a, not a sport, but kind of a sport, not a drama, but kind of a drama, you know, it was, it was neither fish now nor foul to most people in the advertising community and in the television community. They didn't know how to categorize it. It was just this weird thing, but this weird thing they couldn't categorize was all of a sudden dominating primetime ratings on, on Monday nights, not just for the network, but across the board. When, when ABC has to take out a full-page ad in the New York Times asking their advertisers not to place their advertising in professional wrestling because advertising dominates six of the top ten positions on all of cable television and network for an entire week during the football season, you know you're hot. And so do the advertisers in the, in the advertising community. And that's what elevates the business. That's what I miss. I miss the neck and neck, head to head, you know, who's going to win this week, who's going to win this, next week, as opposed to, a, you know, a, a week after week after week domination. I, I experienced them both. I had the luxury of, of living in both worlds. And I much pr prefer a world where the ratings are very, very close, but both companies are growing. Let's talk about how quickly you're growing. You know, we, um, we know the creative that got us here, but the creative from this point forward is going to be heavily criticized. I do think through bash at the beach, most people would say, and yes, there's armchair quarterbacks for everything, but the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And it does feel like it's all downhill from here. And that's the unfortunate reality of when you have a peak, when you're higher than you've ever been, sometimes the only place to go is down, but you don't notice it right away. Like the July 13th nitro from Las Vegas is of course at the MGM grand garden arena. No, it's not Halloween havoc. It's a nitro in middle of July. It's got to sell out 10,731 paying fans for just over $201,000. But what's interesting is the show opens with Hulk Hogan blaming Scott Hall for losing to Goldberg and causing him to drop the title and challenge Hall to a match with Eric Bischoff as the referee. Bischoff is going to act as if he doesn't want to be the ref in that show. And about an hour later on Raw, Triple H would have an opportunity to ask Vince McMahon to referee his match on that show. And Meltzer would freestyle that that appeared to be a spoof. And I'm not saying that you were spoofing what they were doing, but it certainly feels like they were spoofing what you were doing. Did you ever have somebody come to you that you recall in the middle of a nitro and say, oh my God, they just did this. We should fucking poke the bear. I mean, I know that you gave away results once or a few times rather on pre-tape shows and things like that. Was there something where somebody came to you in the middle of a show and you guys decided to have a little fun with it mid show? No. No, I, again, that, that's, there's a lot of narrative and discussion over the last two decades or more about how intensely, you know, WCW and, and people in the production side of WCW, myself included, uh, was watching everything that right. WWE was doing. And that's just not the truth. Once we started our show, we were consumed with producing our live show. Now, there, I'm not saying there weren't people watching WWE. Of course there were. There certainly were inside of the truck because, as we've discussed many times before, we would oftentimes um, – extend the action into the ring, for example, as WWE or WWF was going into a commercial break so that when the, when WWF, whatever, um, went to a commercial break, that audience would switch back over to TNT 
and again, the, the audience, just like you know, we always always talk or often talk when we're producing a live event in front of a, sh- uh, a crowd, especially if it's a TV show, about you know, preconditioning the crowd. We we know where we want them to be emotionally. We know how we want them to react emotionally. So let's amp them up a little bit. Let's lead them to water by doing a couple things off camera or <clears throat> while we're dark before the cameras go up live to precondition a crowd. Well, we had preconditioned the entire nation to kind of switch back and forth between the two programs. Going back to what I said earlier, when when we were going neck and neck and head to head, that was the best time for the business as a whole, not just WWE and not just WCW. Um, but the audience was conditioned to go back and forth, so we would take advantage of that. We would We would exploit that reality and do whatever we could to migrate as many of those viewers over to to Nitro so that they would get counted on our minute-by-minute Nielsen report, which is what's used to to aggregate the quarter hours and the total ratings and things like that. So, yeah, we played a lot of those games, but it was a lot of fun. But beyond games like that, and all of that occurred inside of the truck, I was never aware of that when it was going on. I wasn't paying attention to when WWE was going into a commercial break while I was producing my own live show. But there there were people in the truck that were. That was their job. Other than that, no, there was never any pipeline of what was really going on um, in WWE. I think it may have happened once or twice um, over the course of a couple of years, but I, I don't remember specifically what the incidents were. All right. I want to give you guys a peek behind the curtain and tell you something that's happening at my house every day. Of course, I'm talking about ebb, cool drift. It's no surprise that current events might be contributing to more stress and sleep deprivation. A man that has certainly been the case in my life, but ebb cool drift has helped me out and it can help you out. Megan actually has this on her side of the bed right now. We had a slight disagreement about this recently. She is such a big fan of the ebb cool drift that she knows I'm stealing it when I sleep on her side of the room. I go to bed first. I'm jumping on that side because that's where the ebb cool drift system is. Here's the thing, man. If you have trouble falling asleep, and then when you wake up, you feel like you've hardly slept, you've got to look into an ebb cool drift. And this thing has, I have to admit, won me over in a major way. Megan was the first one of my family to try it. Uh, but once I saw that she was using it every night, I gave it a shot and bam, it helped. Now I got a question for you. Imagine what can take you Imagine what you can take on the morning after a restful night of restorative sleep. Whether you're seeking a natural solution to a long-term battle with sleeplessness, or maybe you're just looking for small improvements to operate at your peak, it's time you give this thing a try. Of course, we're talking about the Ebb Cool Drift Sleep System. And here's the thing. The mind's normal way of dealing with stress and challenges is to be on guard and more vigilant. That makes sense, right? Well, of course, that's the inverse of what you need to get a restful night of sleep. The ebb cool drift system is going to provide a cooling, calming sensation to the forehead designed to counteract the way the mind and body react to stressful situations. Now, ebb's cool drift has clinically been validated and users report improved sleep quality by 90%, 90%. We should also mention that the new ebb cool drift is a lightweight and portable sleep system designed to be incredibly versatile to fit your lifestyle and calm your racing mind anywhere you need. When I say anywhere, I mean, you can travel with this thing. 
And I have to admit, this was something that I said that Megan started using first and won me over because she was sleeping so much better. But don't take my word for it. Check this out. But don't take my word for it. Check this out. On average, Cool Drift Sleep System users reported reducing their time to fall asleep by about 50% and improved their sleep quality by 90%. We mentioned earlier it was clinically validated. Here's what the results were. 8 out of 10 users report falling asleep faster. 8 out of 10 users report improving overall sleep quality. 7 out of 10 users report feeling more alert the next morning. If you're looking to be at your best, but you want to keep it 100% natural, this is the way. And when we're talking about natural, I should mention that traditional sleep aids are going to shut down your mind and body completely. But Ebb is going to work with your brain's natural rhythms to help you sleep the way your body was meant to. This is backed by science. Brain imaging studies followed up to 6,500 nights of studies by renowned sleep researchers and revealed a revolutionary new way to sleep. And just for our listeners, you can save $25 off of your order by going to tryeb.com forward slash 83 weeks and using the promo code 83 weeks at checkout. That's $25 off your order and you can try it risk-free for 60 nights. That's tryebb.com forward slash 83 weeks tryeb.com forward slash 83 weeks and use our promo code 83 weeks to save $25 today. I'm telling you, you'll be glad you did. Let's, uh, let's talk about the criticism here of the creative on this particular nitro. Uh, one of the things that's going to happen is barbarian is going to pin Horace Boulder in two minutes and four seconds. After the match, the flock attacks Barbarian, and eventually Ming makes the save. He and Barbarian clean house together, and Ming puts Barbarian in a Tongan death grip. Next, we've got J.J. Dillon, Chris Jericho, Rey Mysterio, and Dean Malenko coming out for a conference, which leads to Jericho getting a cruiserweight title back, and Rey Mysterio Jr. and Malenko agreeing to wrestle later in the show for the number one contendership. This has been something that in this era fans started to complain about where maybe they felt like the belt was treated more like a prop and perhaps it was less prestigious than it once was. You grew up an old school AWA fan, so you can probably identify with that a little bit, but I have a feeling that you would err on the side of, well, it is a prop. Where do you land on that? I... Wow, great question, Conrad. I'm, I see both sides of it. It is a prop. At the end of the day, everything that we watch, <clears throat> you know, uh, I watched SmackDown last night, a good portion of it. Everything about that show was scripted, set up, rehearsed, not real. Therefore, everything involved in the production of the show falls into one category or the other. The ring is the stage. You know, the belts are the props. They're the elements that inspire story or catalysts for story. They're the stakes. You know, belts, when they're used properly, um, are the gold that everybody is competing for. Um, and I think I was, by the way, I, I, I was guilty very much. So it's, you know, one of the things creatively I look back on, I just want to kick my own ass, um, because it would have been so easy to, to do it differently and, and, and do it better. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, I generally, I, I kind of fall in the middle because I think in order for the stakes to mean anything, in order for that gold that everybody is theoretically fighting for or fictionally fighting for and willing to, to put their lives on the lines for in many cases, in order for that to be believable, then you have to hold that title, that belt, that championship, that holy grail, whatever it may be, the damsel in distress. <laughs> um, you have to hold that in high regard. It has to be worth something. The The audience has to have the perception that it will change the life of the victor, whoever that may be, that's competing for that championship. And if you don't feel, I'll speak for myself, if I don't feel as though the belt really or the championship or the title or whatever you want to call it. If, if I don't feel that it really matters, then I don't really care why anybody's fighting over it. Right. And I, 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 I was guilty of neglecting that, that reality in, in creative oftentimes. And things were moving very quickly. I was moving very quickly. And I think that's one of the things I wish I would have kind of pumped the brakes on and said, okay, let's, let's think about what we're doing here because it was becoming, and I, I'll, I'll say this right at the head of the show. Um, I was really disappointed in myself when I watched this show this morning because there's nothing special about it. Mm -hmm. It was good. I guess for what it was and what it was supposed to be, I could pick out highlights I could point out, and I'm sure I will once we start talking about the show itself, I can point out things that I, I thought, wow, that was we, – we were really making a lot of progress with this particular pay-per-view in certain ways. But the show itself was one big pay-per-view version of um, a, a hardcore match. Not, not, not that all the matches were hardcore matches, but in hardcore matches where nothing really means anything because you've seen people get hit with stop signs, you know, easy bake pie ovens, cookie sheets, garbage cans, mops, whatever, squeegees, you name it. If it fits under a ring, you've seen people beat each other up with it. And none of that matters. It doesn't mean anything. That's why I hate those types of matches because nothing means anything because everything means a little bit. Wow, did I just say that? That's fucking profound. <laughs> that is. I wanna I wanna I can't wait to hear this show. I'm gonna play that back like ten or fifteen times, make a t-shirt out of that shit. When when nothing means anything, you're you're lost. And that's what this show was. It was solid, I guess, as a piece of entertainment. It certainly made a lot of money, despite all the geniuses that said it didn't. It made a great deal of money with an incredibly high profit margin for this pay-per-view. And, you know, we satisfied a lot of advertisers and, and gained some new ones again, as a result of this pay-per-view. So despite what has been previously written in, in by all of the experts who couldn't hit their ass with both hands and a compass, um, it did make money, but the show itself was just boring. It just didn't have anything. It was fun with Jay Leno. I think the the local crowd probably got a pretty big kick out of that because it was Jay Leno. And when you go back and watch the show over at WWE Network, and there are some fun things to watch, by the way. I don't want to shit all over this, but there are some fun things to watch. But if you look at the, the demo of the crowd, you're looking at a 25 to 49-year-old audience. There's not a lot of 18, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds in this crowd. There are some. 
don't get me wrong. And most of them were right up front. But the vast majority of the crowd are 25 to 49. Well, that was a home run for a lot of our advertisers. In, you know, in today's environment, you know, everybody that likes to position themselves as an expert talks, you know, demo, 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 because it's it's like a new science to a lot of these people. And they've never really understood dem demos and ratings before. But now that it's kind of out there in the public domain, they can analyze it, repeat what they've read and heard and sound like they're really smart. But the 18, you know, to 49 year old demo was always a target demo, always the, the, the holy grail for advertisers, folks. It's not new despite what people would like you to think. It's not new. But 25 to 49 was also, a, it, it wasn't the most desirable, but it was very desirable. Those are the people that have young families, they have new cars, they've got new jobs, they're buying their first house. There's a whole lot of things going on inside of that demo, and all of it has to do with spending money. Therefore, advertisers love them. And we were real strong in that demo. And, and if you look at it, it's reflected even in this show. First of all, shout out to you, kudos to you, props to you, whatever you want to say for just owning up right up front and saying, mm, didn't handle that right. I'm disappointed in myself when I watch this back. Like that's, I don't know. That's uh, that takes a man to say that. And also uh, it's, it's real, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not posturing. It's just, I don't know. It's refreshing to hear somebody tell the goddamn truth on a wrestling podcast. How's that? Well, I appreciate that, but you know what? And I think that's part of the, this has been a catharsis for me, you know, doing this show with you because in the beginning, it wasn't easy for me to, I was still pretty defensive. Right. I don't, I don't know why. I, and, and maybe and I'm, I'm not making excuses cause I just was fucking defensive. All right. And, and, and may, and I'm going to guess, I don't know. I'm going to try to analyze shit. I don't spend a lot of time worrying about things like this, but if I had to guess, it's like for 20 years, I've been, you know, between the shoot interviews I've heard and all the bullshit narrative by bullshit dirt sheet writers who have their own personal agendas and just the general kind of negative narrative that surrounds the internet part of wrestling. Because look, we all, people get on and they have comments and they have opinions and they like to argue with each other and they like to tear people down and they like to point out flaws. And it's just the nature, I mean, it's the nature of human beings, I guess. I mean, you look around us, it's everywhere. But the, the cathartic part I think of doing the show is after looking at them and really, again, trying to break down what worked, what didn't work. Why didn't it work? Most importantly, why did it work and why didn't it work? The why is the most important part. But I think in looking at these things and analyzing them, I no longer attach my ego to it at all. Yeah. I, I just look at it as a body of work. It's just, okay, if I had to do that, all, if I could break that down and do that based on what I've learned over the last 22 years, how would I do that differently? That's the way I like to look at these shows. And because one, it makes it fun for me because I can go back and look at something I did 20 years ago and try to figure out a way to, you know, make it so much better and improve it. But you can't do that if you're not honest about your own shit. Looking for a great mother's day or father's day gift idea. I was, and I found it at paint your life with paint your life. You'll get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. 
and you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Dude, I just think this is, uh, I don't know. That's why I enjoy doing this show with you. It's, uh, it's been fun. Let's keep going though. Let's talk about this one particular nitro, uh, as we, we finish up the prior pay-per-view, uh, bash at the beach, which we just talked about what a critical success. This is going to be the last show in an incredible one week run. A $9 million week, in fact, for WCW. But the creative, you can start to feel slipping away. Here's an example. Buff Bagwell comes out in a wheelchair, and Meltzer would clarify, he doesn't need one. It's just for the angle to get Hogan over, as everything in this company ultimately is for. And he calls out Rick Steiner. And before he could say anything to Rick, who had his arm in a sling, Hogan and Beefcake show up, and Hogan begins browbeating Bagwell, shoves him out of the wheelchair, Quote, this really sucked on so many levels. It was right at this moment when I realized WCW was going to lose Mondays consistently. If there was any message last week should have shown, it was that the face of WCW is no longer Hogan. Now it's Bill Goldberg. Instead, we get a pay-per-view show ruined by Hogan. Well, Rodman didn't really help any. And a TV show designed as nothing but a personal vehicle once again for Hulk Hogan. Like when Bagwell can return, he's going to feud with Hogan. They could have allowed Raven or Jericho or Bret Hart or anyone else with some heel heat to do this angle with Bagwell, and then Bagwell could do a hot program when he returns. But instead, it's another one of these WCW injury angles that never pays off. And this is one of those deals, Eric, where it does feel like in hindsight, I kind of see the criticism because you're not going to program Hogan and Bagwell. That didn't happen. But if a Raven or a Jericho or even a Bret Hart did it, Maybe that could have had a payoff with a pay-per-view match between the two. I mean, I know we're way deep in the weeds, but that's what we do here on the show. What do you think of this criticism? I, I mean, I'll, I'll take it. I guess it's fair. I mean, on the surface, it makes perfectly good sense and is obvious. It, it, it's, it, yeah, that's the best way to frame it. That's an obvious comment and a valid comment based on what you've read to me. Now, the question I'll ask myself, and at some point I'll go back and look and, and try to fi find out where were we overall creatively? What, what was going on outside of just the scene that you just described? Right. Where was Bagwell going? What were the plans going forward? Where was the NWO? There was a point in time in 98 when, and it's one of the reasons why we created the Wolfpack and, you know, the, 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 the black and white NWO and the red and black and Wolfpack and all that is because we were trying to build slash split and divide the NWO in such a way that they could end up having their own show on Monday nights. And in order for that to have worked, you would need to have competition and rivalries and stakes and heels and baby faces all under that NWO banner. So that was kind of a macro project at the time. I, and perhaps the scene that you just described that is woefully creatively lacking, I will admit that, but perhaps it was part of something 
different than just that obvious scene. And the other thing I'd like to point out, and I don't mean this to be a shot against Bagwell or anything like that. Um, and by the way, shout out to Marcus. I hope he's healing up and, and getting better. Um, but, you know, Bagwell wasn't ever going to be that main event guy. He just wasn't. The audience was never going to see him in that role, no matter what we did, no matter what he did. It just wasn't going to happen. So, uh, yeah, you can you can make you know statements like Dave did, and you can be right, but you can also be wrong at the same time. And what you don't know about what else was going on is probably one of the reasons why you could be wrong and making just a general statement like that. But I would agree overall. Look, it doesn't take away from the fact. I've said it. I talked about it in my book. I've said it so many times. The I the only regret I've ever really admitted to, to myself, not to anybody else, to myself, was regretting the fact that I didn't quit WCW in July of 1998. Now, is that because I didn't enjoy what I was doing? Is it, it was because I wasn't making enough money as it was, you know, <laughs> that's a hell of a statement. You know, people don't under, you just talked about it, a $9 million fucking week. Why the hell would anybody in yeah. my position want to quit a company that they're working for that you've taken from the ash heap, by the way, because WCW had never made a dime, no matter who was booking it before me, no matter who. It doesn't matter. No matter who is running the company before me, doesn't matter. No matter what their backgrounds were, didn't matter. None of them had ever combined had ever reached a fraction of the success that I was able to create from 1994 to 1998. So why in the world would a 43 or 44, 40-year-old guy who is on top of the world want to quit? Because I saw the handwriting on the wall. I saw what was going on and and I saw where it was taking me. And 90% of my battles weren't being fought, you know, in, 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 a, in a booking meeting or a creative meeting. My battles were being fought internally and it took me away from creative. And I just I, – I didn't prioritize creative. And we started just doing what was quickest and easiest and made sense in the moment. Um, as opposed to really digging in and being passionate about it the way we were in 96 and 97 and early 98 before the whole AOL Time Warner thing started happening. And again, people listening to this, especially the people who are Bischoff haters, and I know they're out there. You know, Dave Meltzer is always going to be a Bischoff hater. And conversely, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to invite him out to Cody for ribs either. But that just is the way it is. And it's the way it will always be. But if you read Guy Evans' book, Nitro, you know, whatever the full name of the book is, I don't know, I just call it the Nitro book by Guy Evans, read about this era of time. Not from me. You don't have to believe me. If you don't believe anything I say, if you think this is, shows all a work, if you think I'm a work, if you think my ego is so big that I won't admit my mistakes and I'm always blamed, you can come up with whatever bullshit you want to tell yourself and your friends. I don't really care. Go read a book that interviews executives from Turner Broadcasting at a much higher level than I discussing the very same thing that I'm describing to you here but on a broader Turner corporate 
level. If you don't believe Guy Evans and you don't want to take the time to read a book, because most people don't, they just like to be smart and say shit, but they don't like to do any research. But if you don't want to read that book, because it's, yeah, admittedly, it's kind of a thick book, you know, it's bigger than a comic book and, and, and you have to actually be able to read a little bit. Um, there's another book called when fools rush in by an author by the name of Nina Monk. That is one of the best books. I think everybody in business should read that book. I, 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 I think in order to graduate with a degree in business, you should have to read that book because it really better than anything I've read. And I'm sure there are other good books out there that, that cover this because it was a big topic. But if you look at the Turner, AOL, Turner, the, excuse me, the, the Time Warner, AOL, Turner merger at that time, one of the biggest media mergers in history, right? It was a complete fucking disaster, not just for WCW, but for everybody. It was a disaster and it affected every aspect of Turner. Look what, look what's happened to CNN since that time. I mean, CNN is basically airport news. It's really the only, the only people watching it are in airports. It's no, almost non-existent from a ratings perspective and a viewership perspective. At, prior to that, CNN was the 24-hour worldwide news powerhouse. And look what's happened to it since. That's just one example. And WCW is another. But this was the period of time, late 98, mid-98, July 98, when I was saying to myself and to Lori, Mrs. B, I said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I see the handwriting on the wall. We're taking this beautiful thing and we're going to completely change the way we're operating it. We're going to gut the budget going forward and we're being asked to produce more content all at the same time. And it's never going to work. And now I've got a bunch of people that have never even watched the show, some of whom don't even know the official title of the show, one of whom didn't even know what night of the week Monday Night Nitro was on when I asked him in front of his peers, which probably cost me my job a couple months later, but didn't even know what night of the show Monday Night Nitro was on. It wasn't a trick question. I asked him. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say his name because he's still like a really powerful guy. But fill in the blank here. Hey, fill in the blank. What night of the week is this show on? The, the show is called Monday Night Nitro. <laughs> that was the title of the show. He didn't know. Right. Imagine that. But now I'm being told how to produce my content. And that's when I started checking out. And I think that affected everything. It's not an excuse. It's a reality. It affects, I didn't handle it well. I'll blame it all on me. I should have, as an executive, I should have been able to be quick enough on my feet to understand how to manage the process of, of, of a corporate merger of this magnitude and how to navigate it politically so that it had a minimal impact on my, my operation. I should have been able to do that, and I didn't. And you're starting, and you'll start seeing it manifest here. I think it manifested here, you know, in a show that is admittedly just flat and uninspiring, with the exception of the Jay Leno cute little angle, which is more about mainstream media than it was about wrestling fans. That's for sure. I admit that. That's why I did it. But um, 
Yeah, you'll see that from about this point all the way through my departure on September 10th, 1999. Let's uh, let's keep it moving. On this same Nitro, uh, just right after Bash at the Beach, we get uh, Ray pinning the returning Rick Martell in 8 minutes and 57 seconds with Tiger Driver 91. Of course, that's what he's calling the Slapjack um, after uh, Bret Hart hit Rick Martell with a chair. The thing I was most fascinated with in this match was not that Stevie Ray got the win or that Bret Hart was attacking someone with a chair. It's that Rick Martell's returning. And and this is, uh, I don't know, unexpected. How did the deal with Rick Martell come to be? I think the rumor and innuendo was he was in talks about going to work for Vince and perhaps being a tag team partner with Don Callis. I don't think that worked out. Instead, he signs with you guys. What do you remember about bringing Martell in here? Zero. Other than, I mean, that's not a, I, I don't want to sound like Rick Martell wasn't an important talent. He was. What I remember about it is basically nothing. Um, he, he, there was not a reason for it. it. Certainly, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, we better sign Rick Martell because otherwise he's going to team up with Don Callis in right, right, right. WWE. It's it, it certainly wasn't inspired by that situation. Um, I, I, look, Rick was Rick was a was a was a brand. Rick was a talent. Uh, Rick was a guy that would help us in Canada. Which is, you know, one of the bigger considerations. Whenever we brought somebody in from another country, um, oftentimes, especially if they were somebody like Rick Martel, who had been around a long time and who had established himself with the wrestling audience, um, who was a big part of, of of the success that WWE had in Canada, oftentimes we'd bring him for that reason alone, because it would help us build up audience in a market that we needed it. Same was true with the UK. So one of the reasons we brought Steve Williams over, Lord Stephen Rico, it's one of the reasons we brought him over, as well as others from the UK, because we needed to to improve our audience and our relationship with the audience in those markets. What better way than to bring in an established, I'll use the term incorrectly, but local talent or indigenous. Makes them sound like an aborigines, but that's not what I meant. I mean, just from that area <laughs> right no I, i'm with you I, I gotta tell you what stood out to me is not that rick martell was back but how great he looked after being gone for so long like i couldn't tell you the last time i saw rick martell before you bring him back here in 98 and he looks like a fucking model again I'm, I'm not saying that to be funny i'm just saying dude's in immaculate shape i mean he looks like if you drew a wrestler he'd probably look something like rick martell here yeah, he had, he had a great look, great physique, and he was a you know he was. I, I don't like to judge people's work in the ring. I, as a fan, I'm not a wrestler, right? right? But in terms of what I like, I I enjoyed watching Rick Martel in the ring. He was always fun for me when I was before I got into wrestling. I I loved to watch Rick Martel in the ring. So, um, it was I, I think it was a good it was a good pickup. There's a pretty uh, influential person in uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling, and Rick Martel is their favorite all time wrestler which is just, you know, just goes to show you everybody's got a favorite and the dude could go, uh, one of the all time best next up, we get DDP pinning the cycle in two minutes and 25 seconds. Um, Meltzer would say as best I can tell, and I've sort of checked around on this. The feeling is that the incident backstage on July 6th, where Barbara threw a fit because Paige opened up 
the back of his head by stiffing him with a chair wasn't an angle for the boys and for the internet. So this was set up. In fact, there's still heat between the two, but they sort of acknowledged the incident in the interviews. Anyway, Rick Rude came out for the finish as Rude and DeCycle collided and Paige schoolboyed him. Apparently Hogan nixed the diamond cutter as the finish, which is where Rude's involvement came in. I guess to show Paige how to do chair shots that don't hurt. They gave Paige three love taps with a chair. Do you remember this? There being an incident between your old pal Brutus the fucking barber beefcake and DDP and a, an errant chair shot that maybe drew a little blood, but really raised some emotion between the two? No. No, I don't. I think that was probably somebody just trying to fill, fill some pages with some dirt that didn't really matter to anybody but but them. Let but no, in. I don't remember. I'm not saying it didn't happen, by the way. Could have happened. I just, man, you talk about an incident that didn't register on anybody's Richter scale. As far as I was concerned, that would be right up there. There's no better time to say, I love you. And the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say, I hate stevensinger.com. And you've heard us rave about his famous roses, but Steven singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Steven won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better service friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say, I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. I do love how, I don't know. It just seems hilarious to me that, and, and I know that I'm going to get shit for this because I, I probably once upon a time believed it myself, but the idea that Hogan would nix a diamond cutter, why the fuck would Hulk Hogan care if somebody else loses a match to a diamond? Cutter? That doesn't make any he, sense he, to me. He, 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 look, you can't make sense out of the things that Dave Meltzer writes, unless you acknowledge one simple fact. Dave Meltzer throughout his career has written from a perspective of, of writing glowingly in a positive way about the things that he personally likes or the people that he personally likes and simultaneously trashing, finding ways with smart ass little cheap shots, just like what you read there. That's why I didn't even comment. I'm so sick of commenting on this piece of garbage that, and I'm, I know the audience is, or at least some of them, because a lot of them encouraged me to do more of it. But unless you understand that Dave's perspective is from a weak, insecure individual who wants people to think that he's a much more knowledgeable person 
uh, about this art form and world and business of professional wrestling than he really is. And the way he tries to achieve that is to write glowingly about the people that he likes and, and gets along with or the product that he likes uh, to watch and finding ways to take cheap shots at the things that he doesn't and hoping that he can convince all the people that read his crap to feel just like him. That's how he feels whole as a human being. So much of what he writes, like that little, that's why I didn't even comment. It's so fucking ridiculous. I can't even get mad about it. It's laughable. But he, it's a consistent need throughout this show so far. There was a comment that, that, that Dave made that, again, I didn't react to, but I'll put it in the context of this discussion. You know, it was something, I'm paraphrasing it, but Dave said something according to you just a few minutes ago. I was like, well, it's one thing about this show. It, it, it only serves a purpose to glorify Hogan's ego or something to that effect. That was the message, at least. Well, that's bullshit, but that's Dave. But, you know, you say that kind of stuff long enough and then the people that read it over yeah. and over and over start believing it's true. And it's not true. Hogan didn't fucking nix a diamond cutter. He could care less. It didn't matter. But it was important to Dave to write that. Not because it was true. Dave certainly wasn't there. Hogan didn't call Dave and say, hey, this is what I did. Neither did Paige. Neither did Brutus. Right, neither did Rick Rude, but Dave felt the need to write it because it reinforced his negative feeling about Hulk Hogan and continued to kind of pile on because that's that's how Dave felt that he could get over with the anti-Hogan wrestling crowd by feeding that kind of narrative. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. He doesn't give a shit. As long as you pay him 10 bucks a month and you you, you believe it's bullshit, he'll keep taking your money. That's how Dave works. Good for him, man. He made a living doing it for a long time. But people need to know that when you, when you a lot of that stuff that you read is so tainted and, and, and so polluted with Dave's negative personal feelings that a lot of it isn't true or accurate. You just have to recognize it for what it is. I am, uh, I don't know. I, I was sort of taken aback by that comment too. I mean, I know that some of our listeners are probably annoyed by you and I discussing Meltzer every week, but I do feel like when you're trying to look back and cover this quote unquote sport, this genre so granularly that we are, and you're trying to cover sort of week to week, I can't think of a better publication to use as a resource than the wrestling observer. And I know that some of our listeners are going to take issue with that, but my counter would be, what else would you use? I mean, it's just the observer and the torch and we've got to have a topic to discuss and nobody else was really covering the inner workings of wrestling. Even if, you know, you, you say there's more holes in this than Swiss cheese. I understand that there wasn't anything else that was like an industry trade. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, Wade Keller was certainly right there. I, I think Dave probably came around before Wade, but Wade was shortly thereafter. I know Wade's been around since 1987. I don't know when Dave started. And 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 Wade did a fairly decent job covering. But early on, and I used to I called Wade out a lot, man, all the way up until even in my time in W in excuse me, in TNA. I uh I I Wade wrote something on the PW Torch that I suppose uh, he, he covered and did an analysis on a position that I supposedly took inside a debate that was going on in TNT that I wasn't even a part of. And I redlined it. 
I took the copy of that just like a, an, an attorney would redline a contract. I, I print and I copied and printed the article. I redlined it with my own notes and comments and then posted it publicly. And I haven't heard from, I, I haven't heard a word from Wade since, but one of the things that's also happened, I think over the last, I think 10 years is guys like Wade Keller, um, Ryan Satin, Jason Powell, um, Dave Shear, Mike Johnson. Um, there's a lot of people that I read, I go to every morning to see what's going on in the industry and people's reaction to certain things. Right. And I have, I have confidence in those people. I, I read them and I believe what they write because it, they don't write dirt. They're not, they're not writing clickbait. They're doing the best they can to cover an industry who is pretty secretive as it needs to be and should be, by the way, they're doing their best to, to cover it and, and bring news and information and perspective to people. The problem that the, the thing that separates Dave and makes him the biggest turd in the, in the septic tank is, and I'm sorry, that's not a good way to say that because now I'm throwing everybody else into the same septic tank as Dave Meltzer and they don't deserve that. Dave does, but they don't. And the reason Dave deserves it is because he twists, turns and lies about things in order to get clickbait. And, and to get people to click on a site and build his audience. The other people that I've mentioned don't do that. They cover it as best they can with facts. And they so I can tell you, and I'm, I won't name his name because I don't want to compromise him in any way. But one of the other publishers, editors, producers of wrestling news that I do consume and have credibility in – over the last 15 years has called me numerable times because he was covering a story that involved me and he wanted to get my perspective before he wrote it. I have tons of respect. Now I would give him my perspective and there were times that he would write it. it, it he would write his story in a way that did not put me in the most favorable light. Guy Evans' book, Nitro, didn't always put me – it's not like I only support people that put me over. This particular individual did a pretty good job of calling me out on some on, on some things I should have been called out on if you're covering the news. But my point, and this is what separates everybody else from, from Dave Meltzer, is that for the most part, these people will, will check their stories. They'll look for an additional source before they publish it. They'll actually act like real journalists where Dave Meltzer acts like a fucking spoiled little brat that's got ADD and has run out of riddle and just writes shit to get people to click. That and, 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 and oftentimes hurts the business in the process, the very business that provides him an opportunity to write his bullshit. He has no qualms about writing things that are not true, unsourced, unverified, but put people or companies in a bad light. He has no problem doing that, but he'll call you out for changing a card after it's been advertised. It's just, that's who he is. He's a, he's a world-class piece of fucking garbage that hurts people and businesses without any respect for what he's doing or what they're doing. And, and oftentimes without even taking the time, cause it's work. I'm sure guys like Ryan Satin would love to come out with some, you know, glaring headline that would, you know, increase his viewership by 20 or 30 or 40% because he ran out and he posted it before anybody else did 
forget that it wasn't true or didn't all the facts weren't in or was based on a false story to begin with. That doesn't matter to Dave Meltzer. Let's just get it out there. Look, I, 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 I love the fact that there is a wrestling news media. I just think that they should be fair and they should be honest and they should be this, held to the same standard that people like Dave Meltzer hold the comp- the, the wrestling industry. Uh, I think Dave Meltzer should hold himself to the same standards that he holds everybody else. And he doesn't. He's a pissant. Oh, gosh. Let's talk about Chavo Guerrero. At some point on this Nitro, he comes down with Pepe and tries to join the Four Horsemen. I got to hear how much acid were you and Kevin Sullivan doing together when y'all decided, Hey, what if we take the other Guerrero and we put him on a goddamn hobby horse? I am so glad you asked me that question. I have been waiting for this question for two years. (laughs) I have been waiting for someone to bust my balls for Pepe, the stick horse. No. Now, Kevin Sullivan may have been dropping some acid. I don't know. I, I've never dropped acid. Not that I wouldn't under the right circumstances. In fact, I'm a little bit intrigued by it. Um, yeah, a little bit of acid. You know, hallucinogenics in, 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 in general interests me. I've been doing some studying about them and how they've been used in clinical research and dating all the way back to World War II and things like that. So, you know, there may be a mushroom or a little peyote, peyote in my future at some point, but it didn't occur here. That was Chavo's idea. I shit you not. And I reason I know that is about two and a half years ago, I had to call. I don't know why the subject came up. It was before you and I were doing the podcast. Maybe it was something that I saw on video or something. Somebody sent me in social media. But I saw, because I, I forgot all about it. And I saw this Chavo and his freaking horse and I on a stick. And I called Chavo. I said, Chavo, where the fuck did that come from? And he just laughed and he said it was it was it was his idea. He and Eddie and the family were at a, a barbecue at a dinner party and the kids were playing and one of them had a little stick and everybody started having fun with it. And Chavo, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this whole story. I don't remember the details of the story, but it sounded something like this, where Chavo started screwing around playing with the kids on his hobby horse and. Probably a couple cocktails later, it turned into a wrestling gimmick. <laughs> and it was not my idea or Kevin Sullivan's. Well, that's tremendous. I would have never in a million years thought that Chavo came up with that. And years later, Bruce Pritchard's idea for him would be to turn him white and call him Kerwin White, like Kerwin Silfies. And uh, yeah, put him in sweater vests and a golf cart and have Dolph Ziggler be his caddy. It was. Not the best creative for Chavo for either company. Way to go, Bruce. (laughs) Hey, since you (laughs) said way to go, Bruce, you said, I was watching SmackDown last night for a few minutes. You and I have talked a lot off air about Thunderdome before we ever saw it, thinking this could be a big deal for the industry, for the company. I mean, who knows what this thing is going to look like. And, And we got to see our first taste of it. As you and I are recording, we have not seen SummerSlam. So we don't know maybe what they learned from the first crack at this and if there are going to be revisions or if it's just going to be the same thing all weekend. You and I don't know just yet, but after seeing it for the very first time on SmackDown, what'd you think? I was happy 
with what I saw. When I say happy, I mean, I was, I was so excited about this, not necessarily for the show, but what this kind of technology and this use of the technology could mean for the industry for the next 10 or 15 years. I really think I, I, I was that excited about this. Um, my impression, and this is just my impression. This is my taste, by the way. I'm not talking, even as a television producer, I'm just talking as Mrs. B and I sat down and watched it last night together. We went out over to our neighbors for dinner and had a really nice steak and a visit, and we came back and watched it. And the first entrance was at Fiend when he came out, you know, to confront Vince. Um, it was too busy. There was too much going on. There was too many lasers for me. Now, other people may dig it. Like if you're younger and you love playing video games and you're out, you find yourself, you know, on Twitch and you're immersed in that world and that's all you do. You may, you may have dug that for me, as I saw Fiend coming out and the use of the lasers and the layered lighting almost made Fiend's entrance look insignificant compared to the to, to the to the lighting that they used to bring him in. It was too much. It didn't add to the Fiend's character. For me, it took away. I would have probably looked at that and said, okay, I love all this. I know we have all this potential. I know we can open up the show with these crazy lights that you probably will only see in a Vegas show. Um, but this is a dark, eerie character. Let's not make it quite as busy and bright. So there, there were little things like that that I'm sure they're going to tweak. By the way, I'm giving you my first impression. I guarantee you when it was over, there are pages of notes that people are going to go through and, and figure out ways to tweak, refine, and evolve this process. Another thing I noticed in that same segment, you know, Vince McMahon standing in the ring. I, I got no expression on Vince's face whatsoever because of the, the way the red was reading in the ring, Vince's face was completely washed out. I don't know if he was crapping his pants. I don't know if he was laughing. I don't know if he was scared to death. I don't know anything. So that whole scene, however many minutes that that scene last, that portion of that scene lasted, that whole scene was a complete waste of time because you couldn't, you achieved nothing for the fiend. You didn't make him scarier. You didn't make him more imposing. You didn't make him more threatening. You didn't get the sense that the fiend was thinking about doing something to Vince McMahon. You got nothing. First of all, you can't get any expressions out of the fiend because he's wearing a freaking mask. So you're pretty limited right from the get-go. But there was so much going on visually up until that point that there was no emotion. You couldn't register any emotion because you couldn't see any. So how was I supposed to feel? What was I supposed to be thinking as a viewer in those – and that's critical, by the way. That's the inciting event. That's the thing that happens. That's the explosion. That's a com spontaneous combustion that sets off a series, a, a chain of events that lead to a story in an angle. So those few, first few minutes are critical. And yet I saw nothing. I felt nothing about The Fiend. I didn't care as a viewer, not as a person. I didn't care. He wasn't telling me. He wasn't foreshadowing anything. I couldn't see Vince's reaction because of the lighting. His facial features, facial features were completely washed out. All I saw was a red blot. Um, looked like he was wearing a red mask, bright red mask. So 
they'll work through those things. Now, here's what I liked about it. And it also really made me think about things that I've said in the past. Not that I'm trying to prove that I'm right, but just for my own, I, I check myself sometimes. Because sometimes I say things and I don't know why I feel the way I feel or I don't know why I say what I say unless I really, really think about it. One of the things that I've said for, I don't know, eight years, one of the challenges that I had with TNA, one of the reasons I was a square peg in a round TNA hole was because I there was no way, no matter who, I've said this a million fucking times. I've said millions of times, not millions, many times in radio interviews and podcast interviews and others that TNA could have flown Undertaker in, been able to use the Undertaker without any trademark infringement, bring him in on a helicopter and lower him down into the Universal Studios and have him dead man walk into what do they used to call that TNA? It was a soundstage, but the, what they called the impact zone. Yeah. You could bring him into the impact zone with all the fanfare that you could muster inside of a soundstage. And once he got into the ring, it wouldn't fucking matter. It wouldn't have mattered. That's why Hogan didn't matter. It's why Sting didn't matter. It's why Booker T didn't matter. None of it mattered. Kurt Angle didn't matter. None of the big names they brought in, and they brought in big names and talented names that went back to WWE and performed at a very high level, right? So they were valuable. Their equity was there. It didn't work in TNA because in TNA, it wasn't just the visual. This is the point I'm trying to make about the production we saw last night at WWE. We're in the weeds here, folks. Warning, warning, warning. Um, it's not just the visual. You can, you can, you can play with the visual. You can use a fish. You can use a wide-angle lens on your 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 um, your jib cameras, and you can do a lot of things. Keep those big wide shots moving, and things like. There's a lot of techniques you could use to camouflage the fact that you've only got six or eight hundred people in a room, and make it look bigger. That can be done, but you can't make it sound bigger. And I think the audio. For me, the best part of what I saw last night, as much as there were a lot of things, like I love the, you know, the crowd being around the ring and you know people being a part of it, but the thing I loved the most about it is the audio. Even when you didn't see the virtual fans on camera necessarily, you heard them, you felt them subconsciously. You knew they were there, which gave you per gave. I'll speak for myself. Gave me permission to now invest in what I was watching because I wasn't kicked between the eyes with the fact that there was nobody in the room. Now that you create that emotion, that, that background noise, it's almost like elevator music, but it's very important. You create that energy that, 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 that virtual crowd brings to the production. Now I felt like I was watching something reasonably close to what I used to love to watch. Still not there. It's not a live crowd, but damn, they're getting there. And I think as time goes on, they're going to find more and more and more ways to kind of refine the, the production techniques available to them and the equipment and the technology available to them, and they'll find better ways to use it. And I hope, God forbid, Kevin Dunn, if you're listening to this, I know you're not, but if you read anything and you hear me referencing this, man, just – I know you got those laser lights, bro, but that doesn't mean you have to use them so much. You know what's weird? I, I thought the same thing. I thought it was overuse of lasers, but 
I didn't say that because, you know, I've told you before, maybe we've talked about it on the show, but I know I've said this off air. Megan hates everything. So if Megan likes it, it's good. So when they debut the new set, I get a text from Bruce right before that says, hey, watch SmackDown. Uh, there was something in there that he knew I'd get a kick out of. So I turned it on and I said, hey, this is the new set. They're calling it Thunderdome. And I let the whole first scene happen with, uh, with Fiend and Vince. And I said, what do you think? And she said, it feels major league. She's like, it feels big. Uh, all those lights are cool. I like that. And I was thinking, man, they're really overdoing this. But she liked it. So maybe those lights aren't for me and you. Maybe they're for, you know, Laurie and Megan. I don't know. And that's, and again, I, I know I said, I'm going to go back to dirt sheets again and I, and I am kind of, but I'm not. And that's one of the things that I try as much as I, you know, sometimes enjoy beating up on some of the, the lies and the deceit and the, all, all the other crap that, you know, comes up in these narratives that we refer back to sometimes. Um, one of the reasons I do that is just to encourage people to be objective. Just because you read it, don't believe it. Just because Eric Bischoff says it or thinks it, that doesn't mean it's right. Just because Conrad or Megan thinks something about SmackDown last night, that's that's their perspective. And, you know, she enjoyed it. Maybe Conrad didn't. Maybe Eric enjoyed parts of it. Maybe didn't enjoy other parts of it. And when we're talking about, you know, things that we would change, that's not tearing it down. Right. You know, and and if I give my opinion, I always say, this is my opinion. It's not a fact. And, and, and by the way, just to, to kind of go back, and I promise this will be the last thing I'm going to say about Meltzer, um, hopefully, unless you bring something up that forces me to. But if Dave were to give his opinions and qualify them as opinions, I would have no problem with that. If Dave were to say, for example, and by the way, in my opinion, Hogan nicks the diamond cutter at the end of the Brutus DDP angle. If he were to say that as his opinion, I have no problem with that. Zero. But when you state it as fact and it's embedded in all of the other facts and information that you're able to pull from published media and you weave it all together in your dirt sheet to give people the feeling that you really are on top of your game and you're, you're, you're positioning rumors and bullshit as fact instead of opinion, that's where you cross the line with me. And I want people to know when I give you my opinion, it's just my opinion. I'm a 65-year-old guy that lives in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, that's been in the business for 33 or 34 years, and I don't watch it the same way most people watch it. So my opinions are not necessarily valid to anybody but me, nor are Dave Meltzer's, nor are Conrad Thompson's, nor are anybody else's. Enjoy it for yourself. Make up your own mind. Decide what you like and what you don't like. Don't listen to people like me or, or anybody else. Just it's an individual experience. We all we've talked about this before, but Conrad, wrestling is a buffet. We all like different things about wrestling. There's no one size fits all. It's not a monolithic genre that all should you know the formula should all be exactly the same. It should never vary because that's how they do it in Japan or that's how they do it somewhere else or this is what I like so everything should be the way I like it. That's not what wrestling is. Wrestling is comedy. It is drama. It is over the top silliness. It is intensity and believable action. It is high work rate, dynamic athleticism. But at the foundation of it of it all, it's great storytelling because without great stories and characters, none of that other shit, not the laser lights, not the crowd, none of it will matter 
if you don't have solid story underneath supporting it. But that's just my opinion. All right, check it out. You've heard us talk about it for a long, long time. If you're not listening to me right now on Raycon wireless earbuds, what the hell are you doing with your life? Here's the thing. Raycon wireless earbuds sound great. You already know that. What you may not know is they started about half the price of the other premium wireless earbuds on the market. But when I say they sound just as great, I'm really selling these things short. They have more bass than any other pair of earbuds I've ever had. I didn't discover that on my own. Good old Jim Ross told me, because if there's one thing you know, it's that Jim Ross is all about that bass. He wants to see that ass drop, baby. Fun fact, somewhere, JR is jamming out to some old school Snoop Dogg, and he's got these everyday E25 earbuds in, and he's rocking it, baby. He's letting them back up into it. These are the best ones yet. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, of course. Come on, Jim. Her and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise isolating fit. I want to mention too, you've heard Eric talk about this. He's got a little bit of cauliflower ear. Traditional earbuds are not comfortable for Eric. He's rocking the Raycons every day. How is that? Well, because they're so comfortable. They're perfect for conference calls or binging 83 weeks like this marathon four hour episode today. Unlike some of those other options too, man, these Raycon earbuds, they're stylish. You don't like a freaking goof with white stems or cords hanging out of your ear. No, you're going to look slick and it's going to sound great. You already know that this company was founded by Ray J and we all know he hit it first, but celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Melissa Etheridge, Brandy, J.R. Smith, Snoop Dogg, I said him twice because he's that cool. Mike Tyson and Rich the Kid are all obsessed with Raycons. And now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Let's, uh, let's get back to Nitro here. We're going to see uh, Hulk Hogan go to a no contest with Scott Hall. Meltzer would say it's seven minutes of a match, even worse than the pay-per-view match the night before ungodly bad Bischoff did the heel ref gimmick where he favored Hogan throughout the cycle attacked hall Hogan moves like he's underwater page did a run in and gave Bischoff the diamond cutter Hogan and disciple beat up hall and page Nash ran in to help Hall, and they signaled like they were back together again. But when Nash tried to power bomb Hogan hall attacked him and there was no reaction to hall turning on Nash again. It's because nobody believes it and nobody wants to see it. Hogan let drop page and Hogan and hall hugged when it's over. This is kind of weird. Why would, why would two guys be booked to wrestle against each other and then wind up just being friends at the end? I don't know. This feels like the. On your Sarsa rule, this feels like surprise for the sake of surprise. I don't know that that really makes sense to wrestle a match and we're beating the hell out of each other. And then, well, we've been friends this whole time and we're really just doing that to fuck with this other guy. Yeah, the, the believability in that is suffering greatly. The formula did not work. You know, I've, I've often said when, he, when, when we talk about Sarsa, which is story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action, those are the five elements that I think make up any good story. And you don't need to have all five to have a great – I mean, if you have all five, you're making money for two or three years or longer. NWO had all five in, in 
in spades. I mean, we had more than we needed of all five. And that's one of the reasons it worked as well as it did. The reason it worked as well as it did. But you can have a great angle that has four of those five components. You can compromise a little bit. If you've only got three out of the five that you can honestly identify and you've kind of just like you would if you were building a house and you would, you know, you'd go and you'd create a blueprint and and really detail the build before you actually broke ground. And if you do the same, if you take that same approach with a story, and it's possible, by the way, to do if somebody comes to me and says, I'm gonna have this guy do this to this guy, and then they're gonna wrestle in the pay-per-view. That's a that's all you need to build a great story. That's the beginning. Okay, now you know where you want to be. Let's start working backwards from that point. And there are things that you can do. There are elements and formulas in all storytelling. Even your friends that are stand-up comics, I bet you will tell you that there is a formula to writing jokes. There are trigger points within the structure and the architecture of a good joke that if you check all of the boxes along the way, you're going to get a laugh. Everything has a form. Everything that works has a form. It doesn't mean that there's not a feel and a little bit of personal nuance and talent that all that comes into play. Don't get me wrong. But if you're, if your job is writing jokes, um, either on a sitcom or on late night TV or whatever it is, I guarantee you, cause you got to write a hundred or 200 jokes a day. Right. To, and maybe one of them will, you know, get used or two of them. And then you're, then as a comedy writer, you're a rock star. If you've got a, you know, late night TV talk show host using your jokes. Damn. You just moved up you know, to the head of the line in a big way. But in order to to have that one joke a week or two or three jokes a week, you know, make it to TV, you're probably writing 500 jokes over the course of a week. You can't write 500 jokes if you don't have a template, if you don't have a format, if you don't have a formula. So I, I think wrestling has the, the, the same opportunity but in the instance that we're talking about here, there was there just the reality component. Well, just he, wasn't there. It wasn't believable. Here's the other thing too. I think fans just want to see Hall and Nash together. At least I do. And secondly, we just saw this angle at the beginning of the show with Ming and Barbarian. Yeah, we were so guilty of that, Conrad. I mean. <clears throat> And it came up even watching this pay-per-view. There were so – you'd have back-to-back matches that you – yeah, the names were different, but the action was the same. The psychology was the same. The story was the same. And that's unforgivable. You know, that was bad formatting. That was on me. And and you're right. You know, you see something play out and go, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then you watch it play out again with two people that you don't want to see tell that story. It's a good point. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving. The main event that week, the show's going to end with Goldberg pinning Kurt Hennig in a minute and 22 seconds with the jackhammer. Um, Meltzer would say only time will tell, but with the show built around Hogan, instead of Goldberg, I'm getting the sense that if this continues, the long-term prognosis of Goldberg is closer to Nikita Koloff than Steve Austin. And obviously it's the first week of Goldberg being champion, but it does rain, uh, you know, a, a fair point, I think. Goldberg's on the show for just a small dose. Hogan's all over it. Part of that is because, well, Goldberg's not a strong promo and he doesn't need to be, but I do like the fact that Goldberg is at least the main event in hindsight. Do you think you should have done more character development on Goldberg or did you feel like, well, shit, this is working. Why would we deviate? 
first of all, again, there was so the, the narrative that you just read to me was so drenched in personal animus, and it's so obvious to me that I, I almost don't even want to reference it again, except to say that character development for Bill Goldberg, he's been living off of that character for 22 years and making millions of dollars in the process because it works. Right. So why would you, why would you want to fuck with that? What, what, what we, what could we have done to improve the strength of Bill's character in 1998 the answer if you're honest i think is nothing right and the proof has been in the last two and a half decades almost of success that this guy's been able to enjoy number one number two you can't build you can't put a guy like bill Gold, especially in 98 he was greener than goose shit for crying out loud the guy didn't have he probably had six moves that he could comfortably execute without hurting anybody or himself he was still wound so tight that by the time he got in the ring, he was almost out of control. It, I mean, and it, it, sheer adrenaline and enthusiasm, not because he's a bad person or angry or didn't respect anybody. None of the negative shit that people will want to automatically assume when they hear me say that. Because of his lack of experience and his natural intensity and his natural athletic drive, he pushed himself so hard to overachieve that's a wonderful quality in a in an athlete but in a professional wrestler where it is performance art and not athletic art you have to take a little different approach and bill had been in the business for what 12 freaking months so what would dave do have me go out there and put him in a 60 minute match with bret hart <laughs> or get or 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 give him or or Chris Benoit so we could have a five star Japanese match. Guess what? That wouldn't have happened. Right? Are you going to give a guy who can't cut a promo a three minute you know dialogue in the center of the ring to give him more camera time? What Dave would you have done? You fucking genius that wouldn't have overexposed Bill Goldberg and you wouldn't even remember Bill Goldberg to this day had Dave Meltzer been booking for Dave for for Bill Goldberg because he would have put him he Dave would have put Bill into a position that he couldn't possibly have carried he would have shit himself all over the ring in the process the audience would have gagged on it and like i said bill goldberg would be a blip in the memory of anybody listening to this show had someone like dave Meltzer in his ominous wrestling knowledge and creative abilities and production experience would have led to so god did i just say i wasn't going to talk about him anymore yeah, and then you got all fired up about it but you know well, it's your fault let's talk about the, the rumor <laughs> backstage uh, rumor has it Goldberg was given a raise just before getting the title up to four years for 4 million, which must be some sort of record for someone just 10 months in. And you've talked a little bit about Goldberg and getting multiple raises. I think this is before he's using what was Hogan's agent's name? Henry, what Henry Holmes. This was a miserable freaking time of my life. I remember this in great detail. It was, ugh. well, but the, the big raise is going to come. I think 
like a few months after this, right? Like he got no, multiple. No, right? no, this is it. No, he got no. This is it. He got one. He got one big one. What can you tell us about that? Uh, I can tell you it was a miserable experience for me, and I was really disappointed. You know, I understand how Terry thinks, and Terry's very loyal to the boys. I mean, you can say what you want. Everybody's got their opinion. People may agree with me that that really know Hulk Hogan and 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 those who don't won't because they believe what they read. Hogan would always Hulk would always protect his own business first. She just would. So would you, Conrad? So would I. Yeah. I would always protect my family first, and and my business is my family security, as is yours. And you can say whatever you want to say about that, but it's a fact. Most people fall into the same category if they're honest with themselves about it. So Hogan, would, I'm, I'm giving everybody that Hogan would protect himself and his business first, as he, sh- in my opinion, as he should have. Where I got a little sideways with him is when he felt the need to share the leverage that he had with Henry Holmes. And when I say that, when when Hulk suggested that. Bill Goldberg use Henry Holmes as, and I'm not sure. Let me take that back. I'll have to talk to Hulk about that. Somehow Barry Bloom Uh-oh. ended up managing Bill before Henry got a hold of him, and then it was either Hulk or Henry that got Goldberg and Henry Holmes together. I'm not sure if it was Hulk or if it was if 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 it was uh, Barry Barry Bloom. Didn't matter. Now Hulk Hogan has Barry Bloom and he has, excuse me, Goldberg has Henry Holmes. Henry Holmes has Bill Goldberg and Barry Bloom. And oh, by the way, and and, uh, Bill Goldberg. And oh, by the way, Barry Bloom also represents Bret Hart. He represents Chris Jericho. He represents this guy, represents that guy. So now everybody knows what everybody's making, which makes negotiating really, really difficult. Because now guys are, now their attorneys are leveraging talent against each other to get a better deal for everybody. That was a miserable situation. And, And I had worked with Henry. I didn't like Barry at all at that point. I, I had made up my mind. I was never going to speak to work with, or do, I don't mind speaking to him, but I would never, I would never do one nickels worth of business with Barry Bloom ever again. Even if it meant millions of dollars out of my pocket, I wouldn't do it as a matter of principle, but it, it became a real challenge for me, but there was one moment. I'm going to tell you a story that I really, really enjoyed. Henry Holmes, every, you know, have you ever been with somebody, and this is before the negotiations with Bill started, by the way. This is when Henry and I and Terry were all, we'd, we'd go out to dinner together. We would have fun together. We'd go out for cocktails together. All right. I got along with, with Henry for a long time before he started representing Bill. But Henry would always, you know, have you ever been around somebody that would tell the same story? No matter how many times a year you'd see them, they would always tell you the same story like it was the first time you ever heard it. Yeah. Like, you ever, uh, having that guy. When you had a meeting in the North Tower, and then <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, no shit. Hey, next time just, just next time just cut me off, will you? God damn it! Don't let me be that guy. Don't let me be that guy. People are gonna be making fun of me and shit because I do the same thing. I'm about to make fun of Henry Holmes for doing. God, you're in a good I'm... mood today. You're a good sport today. Oh, so I. 
Henry would always tell the story about the George Foreman grill. Right. And how he negotiated one of the most successful deals at that time that had ever been done and you know, direct marketing for George Foreman. He would tell that fucking story like it was the first time you'd ever heard it every single time he told you. So now fast forward. Now we're in the, we're in, we're in the mud. We're, it was like a boy named Sue song. You know, we're fighting in the mud and the blood and the beard biting off chunks of each other's ears. And it was, it was ass ugly negotiations. And it got to the point where Henry wouldn't even talk to me. Nor would I talk to him. I told him, I told Jenny Engel, if Henry calls, just tell him to fuck off. I'm not talking to him. If he wants to say something to me, have him put it in writing. I don't want to hear another word out of his voice. I'll only read what he sends me because I didn't trust him anymore. Right. And I wanted everything in writing. So I drawn this line in the sand, which pissed Henry off even more. So finally we get to the point. Now we're not making any progress. Now we're both like, you know, stuck in the mud. We're we're in our positions. We think we're right. Fuck you. No, fuck you. Well, that's great, except for nothing gets done. And we've got to get something done. So I said, okay, here's what we'll do. It was my suggestion. I said, at the time I was represented by CAA, which I probably was and still is the largest talent agency in the world. So I, I, uh, I said, I'll tell you what. Henry, you, you do business. I didn't say this. I had my assistant set it up. He does business with CAA all the time. Let's have Henry come over to CAA, sit down with me and my agent, and let's see if we can work this out like professionals. And Henry agreed. It's been reported that people are overpaying on car insurance by more than $21 billion. But searching for a better deal can take hours and typically results in a bombardment of unwanted spam calls. Until now, thanks to TheZebra.com. TheZebra.com is the nation's car-leading insurance comparison site because it's the only place you can compare quotes side-by-side from over 100 providers to choose the best for you in 90 seconds or less. Plus, they will never sell your information to the spammers, so you don't get any of those unwanted calls or emails. You just answer a few questions on a simple, fast form, and they find you the best rates and coverage in your state. TechCrunch calls the Zebra Kayak for Auto Insurance. And the best part, this is completely free. You could save up to $670 a year using thezebra.com. And with states reopening and people back on the road, the Zebra is committed to making sure you're covered at the lowest possible price. But how much can you save on car and home insurance? Go today and start saving at thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. That's thezebra.com slash 83 weeks. It's spelled T-H-E-Z-E-B-R-A.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank thezebra.com for sponsoring today's podcast. So I call my agent and I said, I want the biggest fucking conference room available at CAA. I don't care how big it is. If you could, if you could pit, fit 60 people at the table, I want 60 people at the table. I don't care if they work in the mail room. I don't care if they're janitors. I don't care if they take care of the plants at night. I don't care what these people actually do for a living as long as they have a suit and tie and look like they could be agents or attorneys. And then I want you to get every one of them a seat at that table. So... Henry comes to this meeting thinking he's going to sit down with me and my agent 
at CAA, neutral territory, right? I didn't want to come to Henry's office. He wouldn't come to my office. Like a couple of fucking little kids, you know, we said, yeah, I'm not going to your office. You know, I'm not going to yours. Okay, well, let's meet on neutral ground, CAA. So Henry walks into this meeting thinking he's going to meet with me and my agent at CAA. And he walks into this room and there's like 30 or 35 people sitting at this long conference table in this really cool room. Right. And of course I'm sitting at the end of the table, like, you know, the grand poobah <laughs> Henry walks in and, and, you know, Henry's all of about five foot six, you know, he's in, by the way, he, he's six foot eight, 300 shredded pounds as an attorney, but as a guy, he's like a five foot six and 135 pounds. And he walks into this room and there's 30 or 40 suits sitting around. He thinks they're all agents and attorneys. They're really just like mailroom clerks and assistants, but that was, that's exactly what I wanted. And right before Henry walked into this room, I told everybody sitting around the table, I said, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I will buy lunch for everybody in this room on Rodeo Drive if I'm wrong. The first thing that he's going to do after he says hello is he's going to find a way to get into the story about the George Foreman grill. I guarantee you. <laughs> so... We're all sitting in the room. I'm sitting at the end of the table. Henry comes in and sits down. Introductions here. Introductions here. Oh, this is going to be great. Let's get to work. And before we do, we guess what Henry does. He, talks he about breaks it. into the George Foreman grill story. The whole fucking room busted out laughing. It's like for the agents did at the end. Once they started laughing, then that gave permission for everybody else at the table to laugh. Because otherwise they were told, do not say a fucking word. Do right. not open your mouth. We want him to think that you're, you know, a big part of the team here. So just make sure your tie is straight and look cool and look like an agent, but do not talk. Well, Henry launched into his story. You know, three or four of the legitimate agents that were in the room busted out laughing. So did everybody else. And of course I took it over the top. I, you know, I was pretending I had tears in my eyes. I was like overplaying it. Right. But yeah, that's how that meeting started out. And that one didn't go well either. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, you said a minute ago, and I know we're, we're sidetracking here, but Barry Bloom is a name. Henry Holmes is not a name that a lot of wrestling fans are familiar with, but. Barry Bloom is, is a guy that a lot of wrestling fans are familiar with. I think these days, you know, he represents Jim Ross and Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega. And I mean, he's still got plenty of wrestling clients in 2020, uh, big name guys with, with big, you know, multi-million multi-year deals. Why, why the, uh, the line in the sand, I'll never do business with Barry Bloom. Because I trusted him and he gave me his word and then he turned around and burned me. Gave me his word. Looked me right in the eye. Shook my hand. Gave me his word. And then at the first opportunity to put a couple bucks in his pocket, he turned around and fucked me. And that that's just, that's a no-fly zone. There's, there will never be a number two. That, you know, sometimes, you know, and I, I know I'm weird about certain things. Like, there's certain things people could do to me. I go, eh, well, fuck, who cares? Right. It's no big other, you know, other people might really hurt their feelings or piss them off. I just, most things run off my back. They really do. I may pretend or react in ways because I'm trying to be entertaining or funny or humor myself sometimes. Um, but deep down inside, eh, it's pretty hard to get me to a point where I'll 
never do business with somebody or never want to have a conversation with somebody. It's really difficult to do. Um, one surefire way to get there is to lie to me, blatantly lie and, and, and deceive me. And there's only one shot at that. And I'll, I, there's never a second shot at that for me. It's a no fly zone. Because you know, I, I honestly think that if someone will lie to you for a dollar, they're certainly going to lie to you for ten. What will they do to you for big money? You know, so once somebody proves to the proves to me that they're willing to compromise your relationship or their integrity, or whatever it is they compromise in order to achieve a financial goal, that's okay for them. That's the way they want to operate. But when it happens to me or I see it. I just never want to do business with that person because it's going to happen to me. It, 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 once they, once they, someone is stand, and this is true in life for me, not just about Barry Bloom. I'm sure Barry has a lot of fine qualities in a lot of other ways. I'm sure he's a, I'm sure his clients love him because he makes them a lot of money, and that's his job, by the way. His job isn't to be a pillar of virtue. I don't know any agent or manager in Hollywood who would suggest that they, you know, they're out there every day trying to build their reputation on being one of the fairest, most honest people in Hollywood. That person doesn't fucking exist. All right. But that being said, once I see that someone is willing to compromise their integrity for a buck, I can't do business with them. Can't. Let's, uh, Okay, sorry. Let's move on. I don't want to talk about that. It's negative. I don't like to live in negative. Well, <laughs> this makes you this dick. <laughs> you sounded like you were having way too much fun getting ready for this next comment. It's in the observer. This is the full sentence. And I'm going to say a series of words, and then I have a question for you. Eric Watts is expected to start working here. What the fuck? Who thought that was a good idea in 1998? Boy, things are going so well. The NWO's hot. Hulk Hogan is a ratings juggernaut. Goldberg is the man to take down Steve Austin. You know what we need? Get Eric Watts' ass in here. That'll do it. What the fuck is this thinking in 1998? God, I don't even know, brother. I don't even know where that came from. And it, look, I, I, I liked Eric. Watt. I mean, on an individual basis, I always got along with Eric. Eric was, he was a good young man. He's a solid young man. Um, he just, he didn't have, you know, he didn't have it, but he was not a bad person. He was a good human being and, and he tried, he worked really hard at it. So there's nothing personal uh, in terms of why I, I, have a hard time believing we would give Eric Watts another try, but somebody must have convinced me. Somebody must have said, Hey, this guy's really been working out. He's been training. He's been taking a different approach. He's been working the Indies. He's been doing this. He's been doing that. But whatever, whatever the justification was or the rationale was to bring him in and give him another shot, I must have bought it. Um, which I'm not, I don't feel bad about that. You know, you, you, you bring somebody in that doesn't work out. They go back, go to work on your character, come back with something new, give it another try. There's nothing wrong with that. Didn't that happen with The Rock? Didn't didn't they give him a try and it kind of sucked and then they brought him back as a different character? Hasn't that happened with a lot of people? I think so. So I, I, I'm not embarrassed that we brought him back. Just, and, right, here's the takeaway from we that. Didn't, 
We didn't bring him back in a high-profile position. We didn't put him in a main event, did we? <laughs> Let's just make sure we're ever. I, I want to make sure that uh, our buddies Ryan Satin and our, our you know our buddy Sean over at Fightful.com. I want to make sure they got the headline right. Eric Watts was our version of The Rock. That's what Eric Bischoff just said. I didn't say that. I'm giving an example. By the way, Sean Rossap is a. Gr- <laughs> I love reading him. By the way, I love doing interviews with him. He makes me laugh. He's a hoot. I like his shit. He's good. Um, I, I didn't, I'm not comparing him to the rock. I'm using an example in the industry. Oftentimes characters are introduced and they die a miserable, embarrassing death ringmaster and go on to become stone cold. Steve Austin. It happens. Right. If you, if you say to yourself as a producer or a booker or a writer, whatever you want to call yourself, nope, we tried that guy five years ago. He sucked. We're never going to go back there again. I don't care what he's done. Nah, that's not doing it. Well, that's pretty stupid. Right. If you've got somebody that has some interest and inclination and some skill sets and they've been out and reworked their character and they want to come back and give it a try, why would you not do that? I'm not opposed, but I feel like after that first run, I've seen enough, Eric wants to know I've seen enough. But yeah, well, you, you pr- proved to be right. You know, your, your, your feeling was right. And Eric just never did have it. Not because he had it physically. There was just something. And that's a weird thing, isn't it? About wrestlers and, and actors and actresses and probably comedians and musicians and ballet dancers, anybody who's involved in the performing arts, I guess there's some people just have that magic intangible it thing that we always talk about and and Eric didn't even have a little bit of it he just didn't have it talk to me a little bit about everything else he just didn't have that everyone knows the risks of driving drunk you could get in a crash people could get hurt or killed but let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol impaired vehicle crashes That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet too. You can get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking and designate a sober driver or call a taxi. If you know someone who's been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but there's one thing for sure. You're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. This message was brought to you today by NHTSA. Uh, Let's talk about Vampiro. Vampiro gets signed at the same time. And I have to admit, this was below my radar at the time. But Vampiro was a megastar once upon a time in Mexico, you know, several years prior to this. He was a heartthrob down there who sold out major arenas and was a major draw and had major heat with the boys because he apparently was relatively green. But, man, the ladies were responding, and he was drawing money at the gate. So here he goes, making more money than a lot of the other folks in the locker room. And now he's got a really cool documentary coming out, or at least it looks really cool from the trailer. Was Vampiro on your radar at all, or would this have been a Sullivan hire, a Terry Taylor hire, or something like that? 
No, you know, because I was I was cruiserweight. It was lucha. It, it was part of the initiative that I I really started um, in terms of bringing more Hispanic wrestlers into into Nitro on a consistent basis. So no, I would have been involved with that. I would have seen tape. I would have heard probably I would have heard about him from Conan first, and then probably looked at tape and and maybe flown him in and have a couple conversations with him. But uh, no, he was on my radar. This wasn't just a handoff to Terry Taylor, or Kevin Sullivan. Let's keep it moving here. Uh, the other thing that pops out big time, there will be a nitro themed restaurant opening in Las Vegas at the Excalibur hotel. A lot to unpack here. The rumor in Indiumendo lately, I don't know that you keep up with this, but there's been a rumor that perhaps Excalibur is going to get scraped. Um, and of all the places to put the nitro grill, why in the world would it be an Excalibur? And I guess. The biggest question is, why did you guys think that you needed a restaurant? I mean, we know famously it's monkey see, monkey do in wrestling. The WWF is going to follow suit, and they're going to do it in Times Square. I don't think you lost nearly the money in Vegas that Vince did in New York, but maybe that was an embezzlement issue on his side. I think some folks went to prison on the other side of that experiment. But talk to us about the Nitro Grill. This doesn't feel like it's the best idea we ever had in WCW. We didn't lose one. Actually, we made money off the Nitro Grill. Really? It was profitable for WCW. Do you know why? It was a licensing deal. deal. We didn't didn't want to be in the restaurant business. We were in the brand business. Nitro was a brand. It was a successful brand. And Vegas was a place that we came to on a regular basis and established a pretty good track record with. So having a, a grill called the Nitro Grill made some sense on Mm. paper. Fortunately, the people that brought it to us were in the restaurant business and all we did was license and support the nitro grill, but we didn't have any uh, firm investment in it whatsoever, not a nickel. So we couldn't have lost money. And we actually did make money based on the upfront guarantees. I think the only person who lost money that I've ever heard is uh, Rick Flair. He says he loaned them some robes and they lost the robes, but I think everybody else made money. Did you ever eat there? Could be. I know that sounds silly, but did you ever have the food? Oh yeah, one time. <laughs> I, 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 I'm. Look, I, I, I'm a guy that'll love a hot dog. You give me a good hot dog off the grill, with with some mustard. I'm, I'm a happy son of a bitch. I'm not a food. I like to cook. I love good food, and I particularly love good food that that I can learn how to make as right. opposed to going to a restaurant and buying it. I love to cook and I'm not very good at it, by the way, there's some things I'm pretty good at, but for the most part, every time I cook something, it's a learning experience. Cause I, I'm always trying new things. Like for example, today I'm going to cook, actually I did this once before, but I'm going to cook a, a, a smoked Thai chicken thigh recipe. So I'm going to get about 12 chicken thighs all boned and I'm going to treat them marinate them in this Thai sauce that we make and then smoke them on the grill for about four hours. I love that kind of stuff, but I can easily just eat a fricking bratwurst on a paper plate and be just as happy. Sometimes that being said, the food was horrible, <laughs> horrible. I agree. I That's just, all I've ever heard is this is just, you subjected 
a lot of young people to some really bad stuff. And it is a, a sort of comical menu. Do you remember some of the silly things on the, uh, the well, menu? I just remember the whole thing was a gimmick. You know, yeah. every, every, everybody on the roster had a hamburger named after him, but they were always they were named after the finishing move or, you know, the Chavo Guerrero high horse hot dog, <laughs> you know, the, the stick pony sandwich, stick pony steak sandwich, you know, that kind of silliness. Here it know. is. I have it pulled up. This is real. The front cover says. Of course, it's the Nitro Grill, Las Vegas. But then at the bottom, where the big boys eat. Ah. And they've got wrestling rings for onion rings. They've got ah. broken fingers for chicken fingers. They've got Macho Man nachos. <laughs> appetizing, doesn't it? How about the Gut Buster? It's their hot wings. A jackknife fried cheese. Coconut shrimp at the beach. Choke slam cheese fries. Headlock hot wings. <laughs> You're actually trying to sell some something to somebody that might make them think they're going to choke. Well, the gut buster is <laughs> the best. Like it just sounds like, Hey, go blow up our, to Hey, do you want diarrhea? Order this. Oh uh, my God. And then they've got the bone jarring soup of the day, the chokehold chili, the slam and steak salad, the starcade Caesar salad. Uh, <laughs> then, uh, Jimmy Hart's pasta. Oh, of course we got to have Jimmy Hart in there for God's sake. How'd he find his way into that menu? <laughs> How about the half Nelson and kick and chicken or I like uh, that one. The figure one. figure four fajitas. That's a good one. My favorite though, is the Booker T-bone. That's an excellent one. Uh, the broken rib, black eye, the big, sexy porterhouse, the spring stampede sirloin. It's just, I don't know. Some of these are, are funny. And then th there's others where it just doesn't feel like there's any effort at all. The, the Hogan burger, the sting burger, the DDB, the diamond Dallas burger. And then of course, this should have been the only burger, the gold burger. Come on. That's great. That's great. Notice I didn't have a food menu on there. Jimmy Hart did, but, but, but I didn't. What would yours have been? God, I don't know. I have to think about that. Uh, some of the names Probably are terrible. A, maybe just a Bischoff smoked bratwurst. Oh no. Bischoff brisket. There you go. Brisket. I love brisket. Oh, you know what? Good. If they really put you in charge of this liverwurst would have been on here somewhere. So, oh no shit. I'm glad that's not on here. Let's keep going. I just thought that was hysterical and we never talk about the nitro grill. So at least we got, you know, what the worst here. part of the nitro grill was Conrad. It, um, well, the worst part of it was the menu itself, but, <laughs> and, but no, the menu is actually kind of fun. I, I would, I'd give the menu a pass, but the quality of the food was just absolutely the worst I've ever eaten anywhere for money. Um, but the worst part of for me was that it was in the Excalibur hotel. Oh, what a piece of shit hotel that is. That place should have been torn down 30 or 40 years ago. Should have never I been mean, fucking built. It's horrible. It is. It's an eyesore. It's a, it's filthy. It's I don't, I don't know who goes in there. I remember the first time I, one of the first, not the first time I went to Vegas, but the first time I went to Vegas on business was about 1988 or 89. I was hosting a show on ESPN called the AWI or arm wrestling international. It was this arm wrestling professional arm wrestling championships. And I was, I was the host and we produced it at the Imperial palace 
down on the strip in Vegas. And I had only been working in wrestling for a year, year and a half. I'd only been on camera for about six months. So this whole experience was new to me. And Lori and I went to Vegas to, to, to do this show. And we went walking around and we went, walked by the Excalibur. And I remember I was talking to somebody standing on the street or a local or somebody says, yeah, it's the, that is the biggest hotel in Las Vegas. There's like 1500 rooms or whatever it was. I don't remember the number. Somebody could look it up and correct me. But at the time the Excalibur was the biggest hotel in Vegas and it was relatively new, but it was ugly as fuck. It just ruined the skyline to me. But you know what? It's a big hotel. And they had the the, the guys and the horses, the knights and the jousting sticks and they had all that crazy shit going on in there. So it was a pretty good tourist attraction. And then in, and in over the years, Las Vegas built up all around it, all around the Excalibur. And now it's one of the, probably the smaller hotels on the Strip. And it's filthy. Have you been in there in the last five years? No. So I was, I got stuck in Vegas. I don't know how this happened. I was flying somewhere else. I got stuck in Vegas, missed a flight connection, whatever. And they tried to put me up in the Excalibur hotel. And as soon as I saw it, I went, no, that's not going to happen, but I'll give it a try. Who knows? Maybe it's different now. A lot of times they remodel these hotels. I walked in and I I said, brother, I will sleep in the airport before I sleep in this flea bag hotel. I don't know how it still exists. I think they're going to scrape it in Luxor. That's the latest rumor that it and Luxor are out of here. Well, I have never been in Luxor, but man, Excalibur is that place should have been ripped down 40 years ago. Let's uh, I can't believe we're doing this. We're, we're like an hour and 40 something minutes into the show. We're not even close to the pay-per-view. Let's get back on track now. Uh, all the luchadors are under contract except Ultimo Dragon, and uh, they've officially been banned from working any shows in Mexico unless they're booked by Sonny Ono to work for Paco Alonso at Arena Mexico's. What was Sonny? What was Sonny's role here? I mean, we know he, what he's doing on camera, you know, walking guys to the ring and you know being a heel manager. But you've also told us how important he was to your new Japan relationship as almost like a translator. And someone who understood Japanese culture, because that's just a totally different animal. But to hear that he has any involvement in Mexico, I think was a bit of a surprise. And it's because it's wrong. Okay. It's because it's not true. Why the fuck would I put Sonny in charge of dealing with damn just on the surface? Somebody should have asked themselves if that even makes any sense. All right. That's just not, it's just not true. Here we go. We're here. Time Paco, to un- meet Sonny. Sonny, meet Paco. Paco likes tacos. Sonny likes sushi. You guys go. You guys go work it out. <laughs> it's like what the fuck? <sighs> Here it is. Are you ready? Take your medicine. I'm ready. Bring it on. Jay Leno agreed to do the next WCW pay per view as a main participant, main event participant. Easy for me to say. On July 17th, his appearance had been in negotiations for several weeks. The believed likelihood that Leno would do the show was the method to the madness that led Eric Bischoff to having WCW buy a tonight show like set and do what was originally planned to be a weekly deal on nitro where Bischoff would do a horrible Leno spoof. The planned weekly deal to set up the match ended after just one episode due to its utter deconstruction of the ratings. The first time it was tried and how severe the head to head competition between the WWF and WCW is going to be. 
building towards a main event pay-per-view angle that they think will derive huge revenue. They aren't willing to sacrifice audience by presenting television that bad. So there's a lot to unpack here. Tell me how you had the idea. What if we got Jay Leno involved? And is it true that you built the tonight show set? Maybe you had some stuff worked out that y'all were going to sort of co-promote, but had he agreed to a match before you did the nitro set? Or was that a way where you thought, Hey, I can make him comfortable and this will feel like something fun he would want to do. God, it was neither so much of what was in that narrative that you just laid out to me was just, I I'm, I'm not even going to respond to it. It's so ridiculous. There's no truth to it. It's all Dave's opinion. It's his perspective. It's his agenda. Blah, 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 blah. So let's move on. Let me tell you how the, the thing with Jay Leno happened and why we did the set. First of all, to kind of back it up and to try to answer your question succinctly, the deal with Leno was cut. We agreed we were going to do the deal. And then we came up with a supporting story to help tell that story. I wouldn't have come up with the set prior to engaging Leno. Would have made no sense to anybody that would think about that for more than a minute or so. That's actually been a business. So the the set, you know, ripping off his jokes, all of that came after we had agreed to to bring Jay Leno in and build a story around it. Um, I was sitting at home in, gosh, I don't know, June or July in 98. I had come out to Wyoming with Lori and the kids, as we often did for the summer. Uh, well, in this case, back then, we were only here for like five or six days over the 4th of July. But nonetheless, I was here in Wyoming. And I got a call from a guy by the name of Alan Sharp. Alan Sharp used to be the head of PR in WCW. Great guy, by the way. Great guy. Super guy. One of the guys I really miss working with. Always positive, full of energy, very bright, tough as shit. He actually got ran over by a tank when he was in the Army. He was in Iraq or Iran or somebody. He was in the desert and had a tank roll over the top of him. Unfortunately, he was in enough of a, of a ravine and, and soft sand. He, he didn't get crushed by the tank, but he actually got run over by a tank. Got to love a guy that can survive being run over by a tank in the desert. Anyway, Alan Sharp gave me a call and said, hey, I just got a call from a guy by the name of Gary Constantine, who's the executive producer over at Jay Leno. Tonight Show. I said, okay, what's he want? Alan said, well, he said, Jay wants to get involved, wants to do something in wrestling. So get the fuck out. Really? Jay Leno? He goes, yeah, he wants to call you or wants you to call him. So he gave me Gary Considine's number. And I called Gary right away. And we hit it off on the phone. And, and it felt like good energy, good juju. So I, I say, well, Gary, I'll tell you what, I have family here and friends coming out, but I'm going to jump on a plane. I'm going to fly out and see you. And let's talk this through because it was too big of an opportunity not to react to immediately. And I jumped on a plane the next day and flew out to L.A. and met Gary over at the NBC studios. And as I'm meeting Gary, in walks Jay Leno. And Jay was just so down to earth, the nicest guy you'd ever ever want to meet and i've met a lot of hollywood people i've met a lot of actors I've met a lot of directors and all of them are very nice but it's not always real you know you, you get the sense that they're acting or they're performing or they're sometimes they're not really looking at you when they're talking to you it just they try to make it look like they are jay was the opposite of that 
Jay was like, the minute he walked into the room, you felt like you've known him all your life. And I guess maybe it's because of part of it is because, you know, we watch, I watched him on television for so long. But most of it is because he's just a genuinely good human being. And you can sense that the minute he walks into the room. So we hit it off and, and Jay said something, or I don't know if it was Jay or Gary said something like, well, what do we want to do? And I looked at Jay and said, well, what do you want to do, Jay? I said, well, I don't know. I'll do, I'll do anything. I, don't know. I just want to have some fun. I said, well, how about a wrestle? Would you wrestle? Yeah, I'll wrestle. I went, oh, this is going to be a hoot. So I, I said to Gary and Jason, let me go back home. Let me think about this for a day or two. Let me come up with an idea that would make sense for Jay Leno and, and for us. It's got to work for both parties. But let me come up with something different that would really get this ball rolling. Cause we didn't have a lot of time. This was like the first of July and you know, the pay-per-view is August 8th. Right. So it's not like we had weeks and weeks and weeks to figure this out. So I, I went home and I thought about it. I thought, okay, what if Hulk Hogan and I take over the tonight show? What if we throw Jay Leno and Kevin Eubanks, who was the guy that had the band? What if we throw him off his set? And what if we do it like the NWO would do it? where it feels real and believable. There's no, there's no comedy. Nobody's going to laugh. There's not about a joke. This is exactly opposite of what anybody who's watching tonight show would ever expect to see on the tonight show. And I thought to myself, if I could sell that to Jay Leno, I can sell anything. Cause I'm talking about throwing the, the host of one of the most watched, most successful shows in the history of television. I'm, I'm at, I'm going to ask to throw him off his set and take over his desk. And I thought, well, if they buy that, they'll buy anything. So sure enough, I went back to LA a day or two later. I said, I think I got it. And I laid it all out and Jay went, Oh, that's awesome. We can make that work. I went, Oh my God, this is going to be a blast. So once we figured that out and then I had to sit down with him, I said, okay, now look, in order for this to work, because this is, a, this is a comedy, this is late night comedy talk. I said, what we're about to do is not late night comedy talk and it's going to throw people off. So you, first of all, you need to know that and expect that. Secondly, in order for it to work for WCW, there can be no laughing, laughing. We can't be tongue in cheek here. It's got to feel as real and believable as it can. Otherwise, if it's he he ha ha and everybody gets the tongue in cheek joke, it'll be good for the Tonight Show, but it won't be good for WCW. So unless you guys think you can pull this off and make it feel like it's really happening, then it's probably not a good idea. And he went, no, 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 we love that. We can do that. I said, okay, well, here's how you do that then. Because here's what really happens in the real world when you're not used to doing things like I'm suggesting we do on your own show. First of all, nobody can know other than Kevin Eubanks because he's involved. But the band members can't know. Your security that are all around the studio here cannot know. Make sure the ones with guns are somewhere else on the other side of the building or something. But you know, mo- nobody was really armed. I'm making a joke there. Your security people can't know. And Jay, you've got to take this seriously. Now here I am giving Jay Leno directions, right? Which is weird in and of itself, but he was such a cool guy. It was easy. He said, if you, if you smile, the minute you crack a smile, when Hogan's up in your face or I'm up in your face, the minute you show us teeth, 
it'll ruin everything. So they, they agreed and we pulled it off and it worked great. I just watched it back this morning. I go, God damn, that worked great. So th- once we got them to agree to do that, that's the inciting incident, right? That's what gets everything, the ball rolling. Once we agreed to get them to do that, then it was, okay, how do we carry the story? Where's the story here? Because we're not going to keep shooting angles with Jay Leno. Hulk's not going to show up at the show. And, and by the way, one of the other things I told Jay is before we show up on your set and start and, and take over your set, you've got to give us a reason to. You've got to give Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff a reason to show up and take exception to what you're saying. So for the first two weeks, start burying Hulk Hogan on The Tonight Show. Just make them the make them the, the 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 focus of your humor. Make fun of them. Do whatever you need to do to get a laugh in your opening monologue. But do that do that a couple nights in a row. That will be the inciting incident that causes us to show up. And then it'll be become believable, and it'll kind of make sense. And then we'll throw you off your set, and that'll be believable, and that'll kind of make sense. And then following that, what I'm going to do, and and Conrad, you have a lot of friends that are comedians. What's the worst thing you can do to a comedian? Say, tell me a joke. No, you can steal his shit. Oh, yeah. Right? You steal a comedian's joke, you're dead. You'll never work anywhere. I mean, they will turn on you. You know what I mean? And, well, you know better than I do. But I thought, okay, well, if I want to get heat with Jay Leto, I'll steal his jokes. So I worked it out with Gary Constant. And by the way, Gary Constant and I are still very close friends to this day. He's a great guy. He's producing television in, in Los Angeles or trying to during COVID like everybody else. But um, w- once we got all that laid out and worked out, then I said, Jay, here's – or Gary, I wasn't talking to Jay all that often at that point. I said, Gary, here's what we need to do. On Friday nights, when Jay's done with his monologue, once you finally get it written, and just like everybody else, you know, the last-minute changes to the script and all that stuff happens every single night – 30 seconds before showtime, they finally get the script approved. And I said, once the show's over and you know exactly what you said in your monologue, what the jokes were in your monologue, please fax that to me immediately after the show because I'm not always able to watch it. And then I'll use that to rip off the same jokes that Jay Leno told on Friday night. I'll, I'll steal those jokes on Monday. That gives Jay a reason to be pissed off other than the fact that we threw him off the set. And in particular, it would give Jay a reason to be pissed off at me because that's where the that's where the win was going to come for Jay. Not he was going to beat Hulk Hogan. He was going to beat me. But there has to be a reason that he's pissed at me uh, in addition to showing up throwing him off his set. So that was the whole idea behind the set, behind me telling the jokes. It was just me doing what's the worst thing you could do to a comedian is steal their material. And that's what that was all about. And it wasn't supposed to be part of a long-term deal. All the rest of that narrative and the nonsense was just Dave, you know, doing what Dave does. But it, it, it was temporary. It was short term. It served its purpose and it was fun. One of the things that I wanted to ask about was. Something that's written here. It's just one sentence. The match pretty much had to take place in Sturgis since the Sturgis rally was part of the selling point in getting Leno. Uh, most of our listeners, I'm sure, know that Jay Leno is a huge automotive guy. Uh, he's just got tons and tons and tons of interest in all things automotive. I mean, he's got a YouTube show. He's had different TV shows. He's very active in that community. So I'm sure he would have been into the motorcycle rally aspect how big of a deal was that? Do you think that 
hey, you'll come in, we'll have some fun, you'll get to do this other thing as well. Was Sturgis a part of the pitch at all that you recall? And again, this is another example in Dave's own words. I didn't write that shit, but nothing is. Leno and Gary Constantine didn't even know that we were doing a show in Sturgis the next month when they called me. They were surprised to hear that. They had made their minds up that they wanted to get involved in wrestling because wrestling was fucking hot and it had nothing to do with Sturgis. Where would that information come from folks? When you read this crap, ask yourself, how would Dave know that? And if the answer is he wouldn't, then he didn't. And in this case, there's nothing. This is so patently, blatantly, blaringly false. It just a, typical example of what Dave does for a living. It had zero to do with it. Zero. It wasn't a part of the pitch. It was Jay Leno has to be at surgeons because that's the only way that he would get involved or whatever the or he wanted to get involved. All of that is just Dave's fiction and Dave's own twisted fucking tormented mind. It wasn't true at all. They didn't even know we were going to be in Sturgis when they reached out to me and Sturgis had already been booked prior so none of it makes sense it's a lie it's a distortion it's just dave living in dave's little world and hoping that you'll pay 10 bucks a month to enjoy it okay by now you know for sure that eric bischoff is a karate man you probably saw him beat rick flair at starcade not a rib uh, you probably also saw him beat terry funk for the hardcore title not a rib well you don't get to kick all these legends asses unless you know how to fight and if you want to fight or just get in better shape Maybe you're getting bored with your workouts. Sure, you could drive to Stanford and take on the three-time Karate Black Belt Hall of Famer Bruce Pritchard, but that wouldn't be very much fun. What if you could get in shape doing some fun workouts with Fight Camp in your very own home? If you're getting bored with your workouts, if you're looking for a workout that keeps you engaged, learning, excited, motivated, something that's never boring, it's always challenging, well, check out our friends at Fight Camp. Fight Camp is going to bring the boxing gym to your living room. They provide you all the gear and the top trainers, everything you need to get great workouts in. The boxing workout has always been ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape and one of the most fun ways to combine cardio and strength training. But right now, you can bring it all together because Fight Camp brings the boxing gym to you with a mix of cardio and conditioning for a full body workout. It comes with all the gear you need, the best freestanding punching bag on the market, great boxing gloves, quick hand wraps, and their unique punch tracking sensors that show you real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. You can even watch yourself reach new milestones and bring that goal-crushing mentality to every part of your life. You can compete on a leaderboard with thousands of others, and that's going to keep you motivated. And don't worry, if you're new to boxing, their 12-week starter program teaches you the fundamentals of boxing while you get a great workout every time. You have access to more than 400 different workouts for all fitness levels and skills with four new ones added every week. We should also mention you can learn from six highly qualified trainers, ranging from a pro MMA fighter and a mother of two to a kickboxing world champion. How about that? You'll get hooked. Fight Camp is going to keep you engaged, focused, and in the zone. There's endless variety here, uplifting beats, motivating trainers, and powerful technology all combined to create a completely unique and satisfying workout. You're going to learn a new skill and continuously get better. And really no other workout can boast the depth of skills and techniques discovered while learning the sport. Like any other martial art fight camp offers 
a lifelong journey of learning and improving. How about this? You can try Fight Camp for free. Just download the Fight Camp app and select the workout of your choice. This is a great way to test out your trainer. And they make it so easy. You can buy now and pay later. You can even use a firm financing to get your gym right away. Then make easy monthly payments and the gym is yours to keep at the end of the term. If you're approved for financing, you pay less than $100 a month, which is cheaper than almost every boxing gym. Plus, you save on the commute time and gas. Since you can have up to five accounts per household, and you can get a whole full boxing gym for the whole family at under 20 bucks a person. Bike Camp is offering flexible financing as low as 0% APR. And right now is a limited time offer. You can try Fight Camp for 30 days with their money back guarantee. Just go to fightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's right. Try Fight Camp for 30 days. And if you don't love it, they'll refund your money. Train like a fighter. Turn your sweat into results. Try Fight Camp for 30 days. Just go to joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. That's joinfightcamp.com slash 83 weeks. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Let's talk about uh, the set. You know, you, you create your own tonight show set. I know you don't have your book in front of you or any sort of records. I mean, freestyle. How much do you think the set cost? Oh, we had to turn it around pretty quickly. So the price would have gone up and we, we actually used the tonight show specs. I mean, it looked just like the tonight show as close as we, as close as we could make it. I don't know. I would say because of the quick turnaround. 75 on a low end buck 25 on the high end. Yeah. I was going to guess a hundred. And obviously it's a ratings disaster. When the ratings come in, do you immediately think, well, that was a good idea, but we're never doing that again. Well, what was the ratings disaster? I mean, let, let me see if it was in fact a disaster before I comment on the disaster. Uh, I don't have it in front of me. I'm sure I can pull it up, but I, I think everyone. No, I'm sure you could do it. I, I don't have them in front of me. I, first of all, I'm just not going to, because Dave said it, just agree that it was probably the case. Um, you never did it a second time is my point. So we didn't plan on doing it a second time for fuck's sake. We only had a couple of weeks between the event. It's not like we had six months to build a story. I didn't even talk to them until July for an August 8th pay-per-view. There weren't that many TVs in between. It's just common sense folks. You got to get, but, but but, but the F no, I'm not hot. I'm just, (laughs) <laughs> I'm just emphasizing shit. Just look at the logic of it. You know, I'm, I'm in Cody, Wyoming for the 4th of July. I get a phone call. I have to make two trips back and forth to LA and turn around a set. And now I've got a couple shows right before the pay-per-view. That's all I had to work with. It was never designed much to the utter disappointment. I'm sure of all the people that think everything that they read in a dirt sheet is real. It was never my intention to do it long-term. And we didn't react to the ratings. The only people that react to ratings as much as they seem to think or write about are the people that write about ratings. I, for one, have never, and to this day, I laugh at people who are comparing, you know, right now we're seeing, you know, NXT and AEW because people are, dirt sheet writers are trying to create a Wednesday night war because that's the only thing that draws interest in their, 
in their publications or their 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 sites online. If there's a war, if there's actually a Coke and Pepsi thing going on in the world of professional wrestling, like it did during the Monday Night Wars, everybody makes more money, right? So as hard as as guys like Meltzer and Alvarez are trying to have this neck and neck race between NXT and AEW, when truthfully, unless there's a three or four hundred thousand viewer spread, it doesn't mean a fucking thing. If 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 one show delivers fifty thousand more viewers than the other show on a given night, guess what? It doesn't fucking matter to advertisers. It's a rounding error. Worse yet, it's a rounding area that uses fucking voodoo as a baseline for its data. Nielsen is a is a kind of educated guess at best. And everybody in, in the world that's in the industry of television mm-hmm. knows that. But they have no choice. There's no alternative. So you accept it. It's an extrapolation of an extrapolation of an extrapolation that, honest to God, I can't make sense of, and neither can even the people in the industry. It's just what we use. But the one thing I can tell you is that when you have fluctuations from week to week, 2%, 3%, 5%, as much as 10%, it doesn't fucking matter. It is no big deal. What matters is year to date. Now, if I'm 15% off or 10% off, my audience is 10 or 15% off this July or this August 22nd in this case versus last August 22nd, I've got a problem. But if I'm down 10% this week over last week, I don't really care. I'll pay attention. I'll make a note. But the last thing I'm going to do is change direction. If you're chasing numbers on a week-to-week basis, it's only a matter of time before you run yourself into a brick wall. You have to look at the longer pattern. Is your audience growing from week to week? Am I gaining 1% or 2% a week? That's, that's good news. Am I holding steady over the course of six months? Yeah, that's not ideal, but it's not bad compared to the rest of television. Am I losing 10 or 15% you know, quarter to quarter or year to date versus year to date? Now I got a problem. That's how I've always looked at ratings. So for people to give the impression that somehow Eric Bischoff was reactive to any weekly rating, it's just not true, especially in the summertime. We've talked about it before. Summertime is one of the more is one of the more difficult times to hold audience because there's just too much shit going on. People are going on vacations, they're partying, they're hanging out in barbecues. Very few people sit around and watch television to the same extent in the in the summertime that they do in the wintertime or in the fall or spring. Summer's a unique thing. I especially wouldn't have overreacted to a weekly rating in in August. But I know that's not the narrative that Dave wants people to think because he wanted people to think that I was just, you know, haphazardly chasing numbers and ratings and throwing shit up against the wall. That's no, sometimes that happened. I'll, I'll admit that. But when it came to ratings and my reaction to them, it, it, I certainly didn't get wound up over it. And I, and I encourage people that when you w- w- read what, you know, especially Brian Alvarez, a little Jack sniffing twit, you know, they want you to think there's this war going on. There's not, there's, there's competition, which is a good thing, but this war and, and trying to assign significance to minor variations, you know, one week to the next is just, complete amateur silliness. I want to mention that, uh, you guys appearance on the tonight show gives Leno a 4.8 to Letterman's 2.8. Uh, 
one of the widest margins he had. So, well, that's because I draw. I mean, another perfect example. I mean, to talk about ratings, you know, Brian Alvarez, Jack Sniffing Little Twit. Um, last week he posted NXT delivered 845,000 viewers. AEW wasn't even on the air. 840,000 viewers. That's a big number, right? On a Wednesday night, guess what? It didn't even come close to the 914,000 viewers and the high point of the show when yours truly was on AEW the week before. What is that? (laughs) That's a perfect example of how liars use numbers and numbers lie. If you want to look at numbers, you can tell whatever story you want to tell, however truthful or accurate or substantive it really is you can tell it and people will buy it uh we should mention that Meltzer is going to beat you up pretty substantially anytime you're talking about doing the Sturgis show and he's going to say that it's been a flop every year on a number of levels you're literally giving away 300 to 400,000 in revenue for the live gate etc etc we've we've beat that up we don't have to go down that road again but you are trying something new here there's a 30 minute concert at some point with Travis Tritt. Meltzer would say a mix that hasn't worked in the past when attempted on pro wrestling shows. And we had seen that before, especially in WCW where there would be, you know, like famously that, uh, show with the pay-per-view in Nashville in 89, there's a fucking country show. And you go back, you know, a few years prior to that during the great American bash tour and you had Willie and Waylon and a bunch of other guys that dusty lined up. Why did you think the Travis Tritt thing might work here? Just because it was a spectacle because it is in Sturgis uh, or was there another strategy to, you know, getting some inroads in the music industry and maybe getting some of those folks to come along or what's the thinking sponsorship. Okay. It's entertainment sponsorship made us look bigger, more attractive to corporate sponsors. And, and, and I know you said we don't have to cover it, but we went ahead and gave Dave all the time in the world to talk about how the, you know, Sturgis lost money hand over fist. It never made any money in the three years, blah, 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 blah. The only reason Eric did is because he liked to go to Sturgis on his motorcycle, all of which is bullshit. We made a ton of money off of Sturgis, not in the gate. And by the way, when was the last time that WCW drew a $300,000 house in 1998, um, in, in August, come on. You know, for him to even throw that number out there is as an example of how much money I was willing to lose because I was pursuing my own personal, you know, vanity project is essentially what Dave is trying to well, say there. Actually, and it's in, not, it's not true. In fairness, you were drawing $300,000 gates routinely. Like the July 27th nitro drew 471 grand for a goddamn nitro. Now it hmm. happens to be at the Alamo dome, but whatever. The point is you're drawing big fucking gates. I would imagine, I would imagine our average was probably closer to 150 to 200,000 on nitros. Yeah. The next week you're in Denver and it's 170 grand. Okay. So you see my point. Let's, let's just, let's stipulate, let's agree that the average nitro gate was approximately 150 to 200 grand during that time. Yes, there were exceptions. Sure. But across the board. 52 weeks a year. Let's just, let's pick it. Let's pick out a number of 175 in between. So yes, we gave up $175,000 in gate in order to pick up five to $8 million a year in, in sponsorship. Uh, yeah, Dave, that's pretty, that's pretty stupid. 
works Sorry. that way. One of the things that was discussed in the observer is that maybe one of the original matches penciled in for Sturgis was Scott Hall versus Kevin Nash, but he would write both Hall and Nash are attempting to nix this because they think they should hold off for Halloween havoc. Uh, and you know, I guess just to let the storyline progress a little more, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Did you ever have talent come to you and say, Hey, I think we're doing this too soon. Could we drag it out a little longer? I mean, that feels like. Sure. A fair request. Sure, and I, and, and, absolutely. And I would have agreed. August pay-per-view was not the, this pay-per-view. This was a new pay-per-view. It was only three years old. It was in a, it was an emerging event. And by the way, you know, if you, and we'll talk about this when we look at some of the matches, but look at the crowd for this show versus the crowd for the last, you know, Sturgis 96, I think that we covered a couple of weeks ago entirely different crowd, entirely different reactions. It was beginning to build. People were coming back every year because now they understood what we were doing. They were more familiar with it. They had more fun with it. I think we did three of them or maybe four in total. And each one of them got bigger and bigger and bigger than the, than the one previous to it. And the crowds became more and more animated. And we'll see that here in, in a, in a big way, I think. But, um, what was the question? <laughs> right, let's, uh, let's keep it moving. Let's talk about some news here. So the, the four horsemen, this is what I want to talk about here. It's written. They're purposely not tipping their hand to the final member of the four horsemen with Dean Malenko, Chris Benoit and Steve McMichael, because WCW is making another big effort to get Ric Flair back, promising that the horsemen would be marketed heavily. And even the idea of calling them the four horsemen, 2000, the plan has all along been David Finley. He hasn't been pushed on TV of late or involved in any of the angles. I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever heard of this, Eric. Do you remember there being an idea that maybe Finley would be a horseman? Cause he certainly fits that old school style. First time I've ever heard of it as well. Well, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> it's just, I, I don't even know what to say. And by the way, not a, not a bad idea. It just wasn't one that was ever discussed in front of me or that I was a part of. Let's talk about, uh, Goldberg Meltzer would say WCW has already taken the steam out of Goldberg's title win by not following it up and keeping that momentum going. He's got no program and the TV still built around Hogan. So it's like his title win meant nothing similar to Hogan killing off the title when sting held it. And I know that you're not really going to love that criticism, but it is fair that once he wins the world title, it feels like he has no real program, so to speak for months. If you don't count the whole Jericho angle that never really goes anywhere, was your approach to, I mean, conventional wisdom in wrestling would say, oh, you've got a champion. He's got to have a story. He's got to have a program. He's got to have a rival, a nemesis, but this feels like almost a different type sports presentation, almost Mike Tyson esque from a generation before you set him up, Goldberg knocks him down. Was that a conscious effort to say, we've got to present him differently? It was not only a conscious effort. It was the only alternative or only way that we could really utilize Bill Goldberg. Again, Bill, Bill was green. Bill didn't have the chops or the experience at that point in his career to work at long programs. The more you saw of Bill Goldberg in 98, the less you would have liked him. 
the less you see Bill Goldberg in 1998, the more you want to see him. Which of those scenarios would you put your money on? No, I agree. I'm not, I can't disagree. This did stick out though. In my notes, the July 20th nitro from salt Lake city, another sellout 211 grand at the door. And this is the place where Goldberg famously debuted, uh, the prior year on September 22nd, same building. And now he's back as world champ and he's not even on the show. I mean, I understand that maybe there was something else going on, but it does feel like this could have been a cool little monumental moment to see him back here. Um, could have been, but without the right story, without an angle, without something that matters, I, I think Bill Goldberg, even to this day, uh, if, if there's anybody that personifies less is more, it was Bill Goldberg's career. And, and I, and, and I mean that with respect. Sure. Um, yeah, there is a lot of conventional thinking in, in wrestling sometimes, oftentimes done by people who don't have any experience in the business or have never been really faced with the realities of dealing with somebody like Bill Goldberg, who had all of the charisma in the world, the intensity, the credibility, the power, the passion, all of the things that you need to be a big star, except for he didn't have experience. It would be like putting somebody who had all the potential in the world to be a great actor and then putting him in a lead role against another great lead actor and having them ruin their career because you, you put them into a position that they couldn't carry. And that's where Bill was. On the one hand, he had mega doses of all of the things that so many people wish they had that didn't. But the one thing he didn't have was the experience and the ability to work with a variety of different types of people in a variety of different types of situation, which is what you need to have to be in a story. So it was a decision, a conscious one. And I think the only one, realistically, if you're if you're actually hands-on and doing it and not sitting on the couch writing about it, is to use Bill very selective. He was almost like an attraction. And guess what? We never lost any steam because of it. It was really easy. And and and, and I'm I'm gonna be a little bit unfair here, and I'll admit it. I have 2020 hindsight right now that that Dave didn't have when he wrote that. But taking advantage of my 2020 hindsight, I was right. We were right. It wasn't just me. We as a whole were right in the way we didn't overexpose Bill Goldberg because he was able to maintain that steam for, what's it been now, 22 years? Yeah. And he's still making making millions of dollars as a result? I'm sorry. It worked. So I don't have anything to apologize for. And I think if, if anybody really thinks about it, if you take a guy who's never wrestled before and because of the power and the magnitude of his character and personality and his look and his intensity, you make a decision to put him in a position like we did, you have to protect him. And sometimes protecting him takes on uh, the, the, the perspective of less is more. And oftentimes less is more works. All right. So check this out by now. You've probably heard these new AEW figures are out. What you may not know is where you can get them. Here's a spoiler. Walmart has them. Now they're selling so quickly. Some Walmarts are selling out immediately. So if you haven't already run down to your local Walmart, 
check out the latest. It's AEW Unrivaled Series 1. That's where you're going to get everybody in their original gear from the very first AEW show. And as a collector, I absolutely love that. You've got Cody, and he's going to be rocking the same outfit he used when he took the sledgehammer to the throne. We've also got our man Chris Jericho, of course, Kenny Omega. A little brand brand for Indy Rhodes is there. And who could forget the Young Bucks and their Elvis cosplay? Such great stuff. You know what I'm saying? Such great shit, pal. These things are highly collectible. Uh, they've got a cool little numbered series here. They've got a chase figure. They've got a rare figure. I was told these are so limited that these are going to be instant collector's items. They've also got two different rings. I don't want to mention to you. One's to really ham it up and play with, $19.99. The other is a scale ring, which is really cool. If you want to talk about detail, this has detail for days. It looks just like the actual ring. I cannot tell you how cool this ring is. Maybe my favorite thing that AEW's put out of Walmart's everywhere is the brand new AEW replica title. Now, yes, it is a toy belt, but what's great about this is this allows you the flexibility of it looking awesome on a shelf, or you can let your kids play with it and really ham it up. I think this is one of the nicest toy belts I've ever seen, but don't take my word for it. Go check it out for yourself. They're at your local Walmart. If your Walmart's out, check an area Walmart and keep checking back. Or here's a little life hack. Go to ringsidecollectibles.com right now. That's ringsidecollectibles.com right now. And you can see series one of AEW's unrivaled figures. I absolutely love these. Just look up on social media. And my social media is filled in my timeline with people looking for these figures. It's like high fives all around when you find one. The collector in me absolutely loves that. You're going to love these too. It's AEW unrivaled series one. Available now at Walmarts everywhere and, of course, online at ringsidecollectibles.com. Now, real quick, I want to mention our partners here, Jazzwares, who created these fantastic figures and this fantastic new toy line from AW. They're going to go ahead and hook one of our lucky listeners up. We've got a trivia question for you. We're going to talk a whole lot about Chris Jericho and everything that he's doing in AEW anytime that subject comes up. But way back when, he worked with Eric in WCW. So here's your trivia question. And if you know the answer, cruise on over to 83 weeks on Twitter. We're going to have it pinned near the top. And one lucky winner is going to win a swag bag, a prize pack, if you will, from our friends at Jazzwares, all about AEW Unrivaled Series 1. Are you ready for the question? Here it is. What was Chris Jericho's last match? Not his first match, his last match in WCW. I'm looking for his opponent, and I'm looking for the date. If you can tell me Chris Jericho's last opponent and the date of that match, you want to go ahead and reply to our tweet over at 83 weeks and then be on the lookout. Somebody's going to slide in your DMs and get you a prize pack. One lucky winner is going to get a great prize pack from Jazzwares, all about AEW Unrivaled Series 1. It's available now at Walmart or, of course, at ringsidecollectibles.com. If you haven't already, go check it out at 83 weeks. If you know the answer, be on the lookout for a DM. Good luck. Let's uh, let's talk about how that creative thinking maybe didn't go our way all the time. Rick Steiner does a promo on Nitro. He's going to challenge Scott Steiner to a match at Road Wild. That brings out Marcus Bagwell in a wheelchair, and he's going to say that he forgives Rick for what happened. Rick and Bagwell were both stumbling all over their words. And then Scott Steiner, who looks even freakier than the last time we saw him, came out and hits Rick with a chair. And then Bagwell gets out of his wheelchair all unsteady looking like he's trying to stop Scott. 
but then turns on Rick and jumps around like he's fine. Takes off his shirt to reveal a black and white NWO shirt. And Meltzer recaps it with this. This was a very good angle, but the timing of it was mind-boggling. WCW literally pissed away a lot of money as they could have drawn a huge rating and a lot of money early next year for Bagwell's return as a babyface, and then turn him heel at the height of his popularity. And he could have been one of the top heels in the company at that point, but now it's all gone. Oh my God, Conrad, did you hear what you just read? Well, here's the thing. and, And I tend to agree with the direction you're heading, but if you go back and you watch that July 6th, Georgia dome nitro. When he comes out and gives the teary speech with his mom pushing the wheelchair, there's a big reaction. I mean, a sympathy reaction for him that we never saw before or after. So I do feel like if there was going to be a moment where maybe Bagwell had the fans with him and could really make a run, it would have been because they saw a real life situation on thunder where he was injured. This could have been it, but it wasn't. Look, the reality, uh, we had to make chicken salad out of chicken shit with regards to Bagwell's injury. And Bagwell was a great performer. Bagwell had the ability to to pull off uh, a great performance. But to suggest that he was going to be a top heel, I think, is just so reflective of what Dave doesn't know. And he couldn't because he never had to work with Bagwell. He never had to try to make things work with. He had the luxury of just watching it and writing about it. Um, Mark was never going to be a top guy in any company, no matter what we did with them. And to suggest that we gave him millions of dollars and all this money we could have made, but Mark Bagwell's a top heel, I think indicates how juvenile sometimes Dave's approach to this types of thing is again, it could be posed. It could be, could have been posed a question, you know, is it possible that this could have happened? Yeah, I would have respected that, but to suggest and say definitively that WCW lost major money because of a creative decision when on the face of it is just stupid. Um, it's just, it is what it is, bro. Not true. Not true. And I think clearly look back at the last 20 years. Was I right about that? I think so. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you called it. Let's talk about, uh, this, this thing you did with the nitro set. It was written in the observer that you wanted to come out with a fake nose and chin, but were talked out of it. Of course, Leno super famous for his uniquely shaped chin. Do you remember there being an idea for you to wear a prosthetic to sort of mock him even more or not so much? Never. And that whole, every second of that creative between Jay and I and the talk show set and me stealing his jokes and all that, that was 100% mine. Good, bad, or ugly. However you feel about it, it was all me. So I don't know where something like that even comes from. I, I really don't. Where does that ha- where does that start? I don't know. That's just silly. No, I never thought of that. And I wouldn't have done it. And if somebody would have suggested it to me, I would have laughed at it. Not in a good way. Not a fa- not a funny haha laugh. Like a what the fuck are you talking to me for laugh? Why are you here? Why are you in this room pitching me an idea like that? Shouldn't you be, shouldn't, shouldn't you be back in catering? 
Dumb idea. Let's, uh, let's keep it going and talk about a bright spot. If you're looking for a good match to watch, I want to recommend that we watch Hall and Giant win the tag titles from Nash and Sting, 12 minutes and eight seconds. It's a great match with super heat. Uh, and, and Meltzer would even say everyone had their working shoes on. Sting is about to put Scott Hall in the Scorpion win. Bret Hart runs out. Sting shoves down Bret. The two argue. That allows Scott Hall to get behind Sting and drop him with the edge for the pin. This is a really fun match worth going out of your way to see uh, on the WWE Network. Isn't it sort of fun when we do have, I mean, listen, we talk about all the bad stuff and there's certainly plenty of it to go around as we march towards this pay-per-view, but this is the era where guys start to say, oh, Sting's not what he once was and oh, Hall's a train wreck and giant doesn't want to be here anymore, but then they go out and steal the show like this. I'm just reminded sometimes when wrestling good is good. There ain't nothing better, man. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. That is, and I think that's what keeps us all watching, right? You know, we all sit through a lot of television and a lot of wrestling on television, and sometimes we're excited about it, and sometimes we're disappointed about it. But I think one of the reasons that we all keep watching is because we're waiting for that one angle. We're waiting for that one moment that can kind of, you know, thrust the business back into the limelight that it once was, you know, back during the Monday Night Wars. And it's possible. That's a fun thing about wrestling is it is possible. We're only limited by our own lacks of imagination. You know, and again, I'll use WWE as an example. Here's this COVID thing. Here's the worst possible situation you could possibly find yourself in if you're the largest producer of professional wrestling in the history of the world. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Your 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 world champion, you know, quitting the business or getting injured and or 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 a downturn in the economy. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Oh, I know. We'll have a pandemic that'll make it impossible for people to congregate inside of an arena and make it hard to shoot the show. That's the worst thing that could have happened to a wrestling company. And what did WWE do? What has it been? Six months? March, April, May, June, July, August. Five months. Let's call it seven months. If you were, if you had a crystal ball back in January and February when this thing first started evolving, seven months after the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, wrestling, and well, the NBA did it as well, and actually the NBA did it first. But in wrestling, WWE found a way to make it work. Is it perfect right now? Nope. Can it be? Can it lead us to that next Monday Night Wars era? or at least popularity of professional wrestling across the boards that, that, that made it feel like, you know, wrestling was as popular as it was back in the late nineties. Um, maybe it's possible. And as long as it's possible, I'll keep cheering them on and keep watching or AEW or anybody else that does it. Cause you want wrestling is to me, wrestling is fun. It should be fun. It's escapism. We're living vicariously through characters or people that we know in some cases, uh, people that we feel we know, even if we don't really know them. Um, and, 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 oh, by the way, they get to show up in your fucking neighborhood once or twice a year and you get to go and watch them live too. It's wrestling is one of the most fun forms of entertainment. If you don't take it too seriously, if you don't overanalyze it, if you just allow yourself to be a fan and, and not get wrapped up in what you think you know because of what you think you've read 
from someone who thinks they know. Forget all that stuff. Sit back, crack a beer, smoke a joint, do whatever makes you happy, and sit back and just watch it because it's different than almost every other form of entertainment on television. And I love it for that reason alone. It's different than everything else. There's nothing else like it. We talked about the best week ever for WCW. We'll check this out. Thunder on July 18th in Oakland. That's a sellout. 14,477 fans, nearly 294 grand at the gate. There's another show on the 17th. I should have mentioned in Stockton. It's also a smaller arena, but still a sellout on July 19th. They've got uh, 9,200 fans paying 172,000 on the 20th. They're in Spokane, Washington with over 10,000 fans paying 185 grand. On the 21st, they're in a little town, and I'm going to butcher the name, called Yakima, Washington, or Yakima. Either way, they got 6,500 people there for 117 grand. I know what you're thinking. Well, what's so impressive about 6,500? Well, the goddamn city has 50,000 people. So more than 10% of these some bitches came to see wrestling. It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, what's even more interesting about those numbers is they're happening on the West Coast where up until 97 or 98, WCW was not a thing. Right. I mean, the West Coast audience for WCW was almost non-existent all the way up until 1996. It was a new company to the majority of the people who were watching in 97 and 98 because they never heard of it before. TBS was weak on the West Coast. WCW Saturday Night, which was 6.05 Eastern for such a long time, was 3.05 in the afternoon on the West Coast. Who's watching TV on Saturday afternoon on the West Coast? Nobody. It's the worst. It, it's television hell. It's, it's, it's prison for television shows. It's why the only thing you really find out is sports and reruns. You know, and even sports has a tough time unless it's, you know, playoffs or collegiate games that are meaningful and things like that. Saturdays are horrible, but that was when our flagship show was on uh, for such a long time. So we didn't have a West Coast audience. So to hear these kinds of numbers, especially in Yakima, Washington, which is, by the way, uh, a primarily an agricultural community, grow a lot of potatoes and root crops and things like that in Yakima. Why do I know that? Because I used to be a sales manager for a company that manufactured potato harvesting and planting equipment. Dolman Manufacturing, Bram, Minnesota. Google it. Spent some time in Yakima. A lot of migrant workers in Yakima. A lot of Hispanic migrant workers in Yakima that love seeing Hispanic wrestling. <gasps> I wonder who was on the card in Yakima. Let's, uh, let's keep it going. Oh, I do want to mention that same week, merchandise is $457,000. It's just Yikes. unbelievable. And by the way, this is before the craze of everybody ordering everything online. Can you imagine if online ordering and sort of one touch and Apple pay and all that existed for nitro era t-shirts, you know, Monday night Jericho and the NWO shirt and the sting shirts, it would have been crazy. Uh, I, and I, I, I don't want to go back to this, Conrad, but imagine as you're laying these numbers out to me, it, it occurs to me even more vividly. Imagine you're me now sitting in, sitting in a room full of a bunch of people telling me how I should operating my, how I should be operating my business and how I should be create, changing my creative. Imagine that. But those kinds of numbers It'd be confusing, wouldn't it? It would. Let's, uh, let's talk about diamond Dallas page. He's going to make the news here, but not for something he did. 
There's a fellow in Orlando impersonating DDP, and he has convinced people at a Toyota dealership that he is, in fact, Diamond Dallas Page. And they took a $32,000 check from him, and he drove away in a brand-new Toyota 4Runner. <laughs> and then he goes and writes another bogus check at a nightclub. He's even apparently convinced his new girlfriend that he is indeed Diamond Dallas Page. Now, of course, in real life, he's Marvin Lee Jr., and he's got a long history of writing bad checks. And supposedly, by the time this news and this little story and this nugget of information makes its way backstage to WCW, the boys are having a ton of fun with this. What do you remember about this story and the, the ribbing that followed? I don't remember any of it. So this is news to me and it's making me laugh. Why is it? And I love Florida. <laughs> some, of my, some of my best friends live in Florida. All of them. my son, my son and my daughter-in-law live in Florida. And I, Mrs. B and I, you know, God willing, hope to go down to Florida and spend at least the month of December, if not December, January, February in Florida. There's a lot to love about Florida, except for there's a bunch of crazy motherfuckers there. Why is it all the weird shit that happens in America happens in Florida? Why is it every bizarro story, like every once in a while, I used to do the show on, on, I don't know where I did it, YouTube or whatever I did it. I'd get up every morning and I, I just read about crazy shit that was happening all over the world. I think I did that last winter. I was getting up like at four or five o'clock in the morning and I was searching like crazy news websites and like seven out of 10 stories every day happened in Florida. What the fuck? And can you imagine being someone that wakes up, wakes up one morning and goes, huh, I think I'm going to imitate diamond Dallas page. Now maybe the, Maybe the guy kind of fundamentally looked, basically looked like Paige, so that might have been an easy scam for him to pull off. But who thinks of this shit? It's crazy. And why do they all live in Florida? Yeah, I, I mean, know. it's a famous thing, you know, where every crazy story starts like a Florida man. Uh, oh, and, and here's a and, and look. I'm gonna make. I'm. I want to be careful how I say this because people get offended so easily. People get triggered. People sitting at home with daddy issues and shit like that get all fucking weepy and crazy when I say some of the stuff that I'm about to say. So within its proper context, why is it that every hot school teacher, female, (laughs) that has sex with a fucking eighth grader, why does it always happen in Florida? I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. It's crazy. Let's, uh, let's talk about what else is crazy. How about this number? You do a replay on TV of Hogan and Rodman taking on DDP and Carl Malone, and it becomes the second most widely viewed quarter hour in cable wrestling history. It drew 4,789,000 homes, not people homes, a 6.51 rating, a 10.2 share. The only thing that beat it was the prior month when you had Hogan and Goldberg at the Georgia dome. It's just remarkable. Uh, and I know that a lot of people, certainly Dave Meltzer poke fun at Hogan and, and are beating up on Hogan and are very critical, but what do those two things have in common? Hulk fucking Hogan. And I'm not saying that, that Goldberg didn't draw. Sure. But 
they weren't just watching. Goldberg had been wrestling on Nitro for months. It was because he was wrestling Hulk Hogan. And I know that, you know, the Hogan haters are going to come after us for that, me specifically, but go ahead. It's, hey, hey, it's Conrad. It's not hard to figure out the common denominator here is Hulk Hogan is a ratings draw in 98, like it or not. And that's, I, I think therein lies the essence of the conflict between myself and, and Meltzer and people like him is just because a certain portion of the audience feels some way about us uh, negatively about a specific talent for any reason, in this case, Hulk Hogan doesn't mean that their opinions actually matter when it comes to the business of the wrestling business. Doesn't mean that their opinions are consistent with that of the vast majority of the people who actually tune in because they just want something to enjoy, not something to analyze and put in the context of a five-star fucking match from the Tokyo Dome. You know what I mean? It's and that's I go back to what I said earlier. Forget about what you read. Forget about it. I mean, if it's entertaining, if you're like me and you just want to keep up to date and know who's doing what to who and how it's being done and all that kind of stuff, sure, why not? Check it out. I do. I'm 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 proud to say that I I like kind of staying on top of the business. Not staying on top of it, being aware of things that are going on in the business that I've spent 33 years of my life in. Um, but it doesn't mean I believe it all. I don't allow it to affect the way I feel about things. And I think that's why I harp so hardly people out there listening. I know I go off too much. I know I say some of the same stuff over and over again. That's my passion. And it's not my passion for my ego. It's my passion for this business. I don't want people to believe what they read or listen to what I say. If, if you find what I say interesting, if I can share a perspective or an opinion that's my opinion. If if that if that if you enjoy that, I'm very grateful that that I'm able to do the show, and, and even more grateful that you're listening. But it doesn't mean that you should take my word for it. Have your own freaking opinion. And this is another perfect example. Dave spent thousands of words burying Hulk Hogan, both outwardly and his little inferences, the implications, the nuanced little shots and almost everything that he says with regard to Hogan years he spent doing that, but it, it fails. It dies a miserable fucking death when you actually put it up against the realities of the business in 98. There's the disconnect between what Dave thinks he knows about the business and what the business is really delivering. And this is another example of that. And again, my takeaway isn't to beat up on Meltzer. I really don't give a fuck what I could care less about Dave Meltzer. Really? What I do care about is the impact that that type of narrative has on the overall business and the people that either enjoy it or don't. Anyway, God damn, I've talked more about that piece of garbage today than I have in the last two shows combined. Switch gear. Pissed off. Pissed off at myself. Savewithconrad.com makes saving money fast and easy. Don't take my word for it. Just ask Justin in Ashland, Kentucky. He said, very personable, always available. Derek was great and always there when I had questions. Plus, I saved a bunch of money compared to my previous loan. Five stars. Tyson in Long Beach, California says, Save with Conrad was great. Give Derek a raise. Matthew in Richmond, Pennsylvania says, SaveWithConrad.com was very easy to work with, trustworthy, friendly, and responsive. 
Michael in Brunswick, Ohio says, SaveWithConrad.com was very responsive. Everything was smooth, no hassle, no BS. Linda in Connecticut left a five-star review and said, we're going to save her more than $75,000. But how much can you save? Find out right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Make it happen for your family right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Talk about the Leno way of promoting Hogan. You know, he's going to have, you know, imposters come out and, and he's clearly making fun of Hogan every chance he gets. And that's great promotion for you guys. Is that something he discusses ahead of time? You know, when he brings out a, a short old fat man dressed up as a, in a Hulk Hogan costume, or he has a, a little man driving a, a tricycle saying, Oh, Hogan looked bigger on TV. Do you see any of that ahead of time? Does it ran past you or is Leno just got, Hey man, you know what you're doing. Have fun. It was more of the latter. Yeah. I mean, they didn't, I, I think, you know, in, in a fun way, Gary might've said, Hey, this is what we're doing. This should be fun. What do you think? You know, in a, in a, but not in a creative approval kind of way, not in a collaborative, you know, way where I would, or Hulk would say, no, nah, brother, I'm not feeling that. Maybe you should do that. None of that. Right. But in a, in a, just a, Hey, this, this should be fun. Check it out. Cool. Have fun with it. You know, because it didn't matter. Right. The, the more over the top Jay got, you know, the better it was, the angrier Hulk would be, the more Hulk would want to kick his ass. So there was no level of making fun of Hulk Hogan that wasn't going to work for the story. So no, there was no concern. He had free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. And if he shared anything, it was more out of fun and the spirit of working together than it was a creative approval issue. We, we oftentimes talk about, we get way in the weeds on the business side. And, and I'm just am fascinated by the financial aspect of this and you know, what, what was working, what wasn't, I want to do a comparison real fast for 95, 96, 97, and 98. So we'll call it, you know, July of those years, July of 95, you're averaging 2008 fans in 96, you're up to 3,502 in 97, you're up to 5,317 in 98, you're up to 7,595. Your average gate goes from 20,000 to 40,000 to 73,000 to 148,000. It's nearly fucking double every time, Eric. It's just fucking unbelievable. And the ratings, they're telling a similar story. You go from a 2.1 to a 2.17 to a 2.12 to a 3.35. Gates or, or, or pay-per-view payoffs, rather. This is a weird thing. In 95, you're doing... 2 million roughly pay-per-view revenue to 1.62 in 96 to 1.95 to 97. And then of course we talked about what a bonanza it was for bash at the beach, 3.68 for 98. It's just unbelievable how the momentum has started the first year with, with nitro coming around the corner. The second year we're starting to feel it. Now we've got the NWO. The third year, we're firmly in control of the wrestling landscape in America with Hulk Hogan as the top heel, and we're trying to see who from WCW can can topple him. We're building the Sting story. 98, Sting is a bona fide superstar, and oh, by the way, so is a fellow named Goldberg. You sprinkle the celebrity in there. 
it's just unbelievable. I mean, if you could draw this out on a chart, it's just up, up, up. Should have been, a, should be a movie. Shouldn't it? It should be a movie. I mean, as you describe that to me, I, I get really, I, I lived it and I didn't realize it while I was living it, but it, you know, looking back on it, when you put it in the context, you just did, it was an amazing time. And the, here's the thing. It's, it, it can be again, it's just a matter of time. It's not, if it's going to happen again, it's when it's going to happen again. It might not be, you know, the number you gave uh, on a, a replay, uh, I, I think it was 6 million homes for nitro. That was a replay. Is that right? Yeah. It's crazy. Six. Six million homes, and I think the Nielsen used to to figure out viewers. I think they multiply that by one point five. Um, so that's nine million people, nine million eye well, nine million sets of eyeballs, eighteen million total, but nine million people watching wrestling. If you added up Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and AEW for the next four months, you're not going to get the 9 million people at the rate we are in right now. Isn't that amazing? Just a perspective. And there's reasons for that. I mean, it's not just quality of programming. Right, right. Streaming and people watching TV different and all that. All, all of that factors into it. COVID now. But imagine that. 9 million people watching wrestling. It's amazing. Among the worst nitros in history took place on July 27th at the Alamo dome. But as we said, there's more than 20,000 fans there and over 19,000 paid an incredible gate, $471,000. Meltzer would say it's almost mind boggling, not only the gate, but that it had gotten to the point where a $471,000 gate is considered something of a disappointment. They were hoping for 25,000 plus and to break the gate record set in 97 for 480 grand with Shawn Michaels and Sid Vicious on top at the Royal Rumble. He would also say the only other thing that's mind boggling is on the same night, Raw was in Anaheim and drew another sellout and, uh, they had 12,000 paid. JR is going to refer to it as 18,000, which is bullshit. Nitro legitimately had 20,000 in the building, but Tony Schiavone on Nitro would say we must have 13 to 14,000 fans here. It's kind of hilarious that JR and Vince McMahon being the, uh, marketers, they are, they're going to fudge their number higher and Schiavone in typical Schiavone fashion fudges his lower. Yeah, it's typical, isn't it? it, it it's <laughs> typical. But that's okay. It doesn't matter. All that mattered was the money, you know, all that mattered was the success. But it, it, it's funny that with all the criticism that we've been taking, you know, up to this point, 98 from guys like Meltzer and others, you know, everybody tearing it down, everything that's wrong with the business, everything Bishop's doing that's wrong, all these poor decisions everybody's making, yet all of that flies in the face of the, the money that was being delivered to the bottom line, both in WWE and in WCW, the business was at its peak in 98. I just, it, it just, it was, and maybe it got bigger, you know, maybe as WCW started to deteriorate as a product and the audience shifted over to WWE, maybe the WWE experienced, you know, greater su success than either company was experiencing in 98. I'm no expert. I don't have records sitting in front of me. I don't pretend to know all that shit. But all I can tell you is that in 1998, I don't think the wrestling business as a whole has ever been as healthy before 
or sense as it was during this time because of all the things, according to Dave Meltzer, we've been doing wrong for so many years. Let's, uh, let's talk about this same show being the one that has the 17 minute tonight show segment where people would probably rather commit suicide than go watch it again, according to Meltzer. Um, but the, the interesting thing about this show is it does feature the first bill Goldberg interview. And after we've seen Meltzer sort of beating the drum about, man, they're not handling Goldberg enough. There's not enough Goldberg. He's not the face of the company. He would write of the interview. He did a good job, but. I think it wasn't the right time for it. And some of the mystique may have been hurt. <laughs> Thank God. Man. It's a good thing you're in Alabama and I'm in Wyoming or I'd just lay a big sloppy <laughs> wet kiss right on that big old bearded mushy ears. <laughs> I just don't, I mean, like, come on, man. Like you can't have Dave, it are you ways. listening? Hey, Brian Alvarez post that Dave buries himself. <laughs> I like it. You know, you did say earlier that, you know, he's not a, a strong promo and things like that. I mean, he's only a handful of months into the business and the formula was clearly working, but I think with any other talent, if you had a guy who was quote unquote over and connecting with the fans, but he couldn't talk a generation prior, he would have had a mouthpiece. Do you remember anybody in the back ever pitching? Hey man, we just need somebody to talk for him because that was certainly the solution for if you had a big, nasty heel, I'll oh, let Bobby Heenan talk for him. You know what I mean? It would have taken, no, your, your question was, did anybody come to me with that? No, they didn't. And I'm glad because it would have been a really short conversation that people would have been writing about and talking about today. Cause I would have really pissed me off. It would have taken every, whatever mystique, what, not whatever Bill Goldberg had a ton of mystique. It would have, who are we going to put Jimmy Hart with him? Right. Come on. No. What would that have done? What manager that was in the industry at the time would have had the type of personality and character that would have been consistent with the character of Bill Goldberg? The answer was nobody. Right. You, you couldn't do that. That would have hurt Bill more than that would have hurt Bill just as much of, as him going out and doing a job for Lodi. I mean, it just, nah, it wouldn't have worked. Look, the fact that Bill didn't talk is what made him interesting. I, I used to tell guys when I was trying to direct them, and that's the one thing I, you know, I, I really enjoyed doing that I, I didn't really do often enough uh, or consistently enough, but it was a part of producing that I really enjoyed the most is taking a talent that wasn't really good at promos and number one, teaching them, but really teaching them was all about giving them confidence in a, in a process that they could understand and utilize to, to help consistently deliver good promos. And I used to use an example all the time because people typically, especially young talent, they come out, number one, they're nervous and they're insecure because they're not good at promos and they don't have a lot of experience doing it. And it's probably in some ways scarier for them than, you know, doing a hurricane rata. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things they can do physically that they feel very comfortable doing, but you take that same person, a young talent and put a microphone on them and have a camera in their face and they completely wet themselves. It's not uncommon. Well, not wet themselves, but you know what I mean? Get so bound up and tight and nervous and insecure that they, it's really hard for them to deliver a great promo. And one of the things that, that they typically do, people in that category typically do, is the minute you put a mic, in your, mic in their hand, you go three, two, 
one. Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do, Connor. I'm going to come out. I'm going to grab you by the neck. I'm going to throw you over the top rope. I'm going to stop you. They yell and they scream and they talk so fast because they're nervous. And that's just, that's common. That happens to everybody. It probably happens to people that have never been a public speaker before that have to get up in front of a large group of people and, and, and give a speech. It's, it's a natural reaction. And one of the things I used to tell people is because sometimes it's easier to teach someone by giving them something they can visualize as opposed to saying, no, this is how you do it. Because if they don't relate to it, if they can't visualize it, they'll never really understand it. Even if they nod their head and say they do. So I used to say, imagine you walking into your living room, come home from work, television's on, kids are running around the house, you're anxious to sit and watch the news, you grab a beer, maybe a bag of potato chips or a pickle or whatever, and you sit down on a couch, you turn on the news, and your your host, your anchor, is looking at you and not saying a word for, I don't know, eight seconds. That's going to draw you in. The fact that you're not hearing anything is going to grab your attention more than anything that anchor would, is going to say. For that moment, he's going to get your attention by saying nothing because sometimes less is more. Sometimes when you're doing an interview and not yelling has more intensity than screaming at the top of your lungs because you're supposed to be really pissed off. You get my point? And when you when you put it in that context, people can they go, oh wow, I get that, yeah, because that would be weird if I walked in and I turned on the television and the news, which is normally all they ever fucking do is talk constantly over the top of each other, yelling at each other all the way into a commercial break. But if all of a sudden you deviate from that pattern and your anchor is looking serious and not saying a word, you're going to stop everything you're doing and listen to what they have to say. And when I think sometimes. That less is more, that silent strength, that bring your voice down and draw people in and make them want to hear what you're saying because obviously it's important because it's different than what we normally hear. The key to that whole thing that I just went through is it's different. The reason you pay attention to the news anchor who's not talking is because 99.999% of the time, that's all they fucking do is talk. And sometimes you have a wrestling character like Bill Goldberg who, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be doing an interview in the UK right now. But sometimes, yeah, you have this, this character and traditionally, yes, normally, yes, this character talks and you, you expose him and you involve him in storylines. But sometimes having a character that's different than what you normally would do works even better. And, and, and it wasn't by design necessarily. It was by necessity with Bill, as we've talked about. He didn't have – he just didn't have the experience to go out there and have a 20-minute match with Ric Flair or Bret Hart or anybody else. He was he was one style of wrestler and, and one type of character. Obviously, we wanted to build on that over time and, and be able to you know broaden the – creative palette that we could use to paint pictures for Bill Goldberg. But in 1998, man, we only had two colors of paint, black and white. That was it. Nothing in between. Let's talk about something else that you made pretty black and white to Benoit Guerrero, Malenko and Jericho, that if they don't sign extensions of their contracts, they won't be pushed over the next year. Meltzer would say, I believe some, if not all the above were offered substantial raises to stay. 
Conan was the only person basically given the ultimatum that he has signed and he's at least been given a chance to get over. Although his crowd reactions have shocked everyone considering he was never really pushed. Jericho is expected to sign, but hasn't as of yet. Of course we know that's not going to be the case. Do you remember feeling like these guys were unhappy and, and sort of doing some plain speak? Hey, uh, you need to get with the program and sign, or I can't feature you, which is logical. Yeah, I mean, there was an issue, but let's, you know, context is king. You know, it was a great time to be a, a wrestling talent, especially a top wrestling talent in either company, because both companies were hungry to sign top talent and talent had leverage, which is something that up until AEW, they haven't had uh, uh, up until the last year. Um, but at that time in 98 in particular, probably more so than ever in history, talent had leverage and WWE had learned a lesson, um, and, and was locking up their talent so that they were no longer available to be acquired by the competitor. WCW was doing the same thing and the talent was aware of it and making the most of it as they should have. Let's, uh, let's also talk about another piece of news here that really jumped off the page. Bruce buffer, younger brother of Michael is now doing some work as a business manager for tank Abbott and has expressed interest in having him work for WCW. Now, of course, Bruce buffer has gone on to become the legendary UFC announcer. He needs no introduction, but I didn't realize that he may have been the liaison that got you with tank Abbott. Huh? Likely true. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, what about Scott Hall here? He's going to have a bit of a situation on the morning of July 30th. He's arrested on misdemeanor, simple battery and disturbing the peace by intoxication. And, uh, Meltzer would say on the surface, this appears to be something minor, but it is something that should have everyone in WCW concerned. What was your strategy feeling? Take us back in time here. Summer of 98, you know, he, two years prior, uh, helped you really put a shot in the arm to professional wrestling and turn WCW on its ear. And now, man, we're, uh, we're struggling a little bit. Yeah, it was really, really tough. And it became more complicated by the fact that Brad Siegel's niece, and I'm trying to remember her name as, as we're recording this, and I, it, it escapes me right now. I'll hopefully think of it before we get too far along in this story. But Brad Siegel had come to me and said, hey, I think her name was Emily. Emily, I can't remember her last name. But Brad Siegel came. Brad Siegel was the president of TNT for people who are new to the show. And Brad Siegel came to me and said, hey, my daughter's, you know, she's getting out of college. She's got a degree in this. She wants to get into production. You know, can you find any room for her? WCW. I said, sure. You know, we we were growing. We needed good talent. We, you know, she. I don't think we brought her in as an intern, but she was brought in as a lower level producer, or assistant producer, more than likely. And we brought her in, and before I knew it, you know, she and Scott Hall were a thing. Now I've not only got a guy in Scott Hall with a severe emotional chemical challenge. Um, 
Scott, you know, I'm not saying anything that Scott hasn't talked about or admitted or was in his book. I hesitate, but I just because it's my nature not to talk about other people's shit. But you know, Scott was bipolar. He was he, he was addicted. He was it was every bad thing that could possibly happen to a human being for the most part was going on with Scott Hall. Oh, and now let's make it a little worse. Let's have him, you know, have an affair, so to speak. I don't even know if he was still married or not at the time. Uh, let's have him hook up with the president of the network's niece. Cause that's going to make life so much easier for everybody. And I love Scott Hall to death to this day. He's, he's, he's a good friend and someone who I've learned to have a lot of respect for because of the way he's been able to, you know, continue to try and deal with this challenge. But at the time I wanted to just, I wanted to run him over to parking lot because now I've got the president of the network's niece involved. And what's the first thing that Scott does? He uses that. He brags about it. He's got an in with Brad Siegel. Lucky Z, man, if I need to, Emily will hook me up with Brad. We'll fix this. You know, and a lot of that was just Scott being Scott. But some of it was true. You know, and it wasn't Scott necessarily circumventing the process and trying to get to the, to the network president. But it was Emily's. <laughs> she had that ability. So, yeah, it was a real pain in the ass. And even that got horrible. That whole situation got horrible. I mean, she went downhill. He went down. It was just ugly. And and being stuck in the middle of that and trying to manage it, I didn't do a good job, clearly. I did the best job I knew how to do at that time. But that was clearly wasn't good enough and wasn't even remotely adequate. But. I did the best I could. It was horrible, just horrible. Because, you you know, Scott was still, this is 98. You know, we're drawing $148,000 houses on average. He was an important part of that equation. You know, it's not like, well, we'll just pull out Scott Hall and we can continue as if nothing happened. That wasn't the case. This was an ensemble cast in the NWO. You know, that was what we created. That's what got us to the dance. That's what got us to $148,000 average houses in 98. That's what got us to his $3.6 million net on a pay-per-view in 1998 was the cast of characters. And if you start plucking them out, you know it starts to impact business. So I was trying to balance, trying to keep things going and trying to deal with the obvious challenges that were being presented under the circumstances. You're trying back to back celebrity runs here at pay-per-view. We did the NBA and Kevin green in July. Now we're going to try to do the tonight show in August and we're not getting near the publicity. I mean, you are getting a little bit of, you know, tongue in cheek stuff, like a tale of the tape graphic in the New York post. Shows like Access Hollywood and, you know, the E! shows, they're all covering it. But it's not nearly the uh, headline grabber that it was the week before. Did you expect there to be more mainstream publicity? Or did you think, you know, we've got the Tonight Show. Between the Tonight Show and Nitro and a little bit of those Access Hollywood type shows. And that's, that's sufficient? Or were you a little disappointed on the heels of, all the hysteria around the NBA the prior month. No, it was exactly what I expected. And, and if you step back and think about it, you know, we, and we've, we've, you and I have covered this. You know, one of the reasons that I use sports celebrities the way I use them, and one of the reasons that I bought, you know, full page ads and half page ads and the USA Today is because I knew, you know, morning, 
rock jock, sports jock, sports talk radio would all be talking about, you know, these athletes, NBA, NFL athletes that we were using. So you would end up getting a lot of free, especially, you know, FM morning drive. You'd be getting all kinds of free advertising you couldn't afford to buy. I knew that that wasn't going to be the case with Jay Leno because our morning sports jocks, morning you know, rock jocks that talk about sports Monday through Friday in every major market in the United States. That's basically what they talk about every day. They wouldn't be talking about Jay Leno. But I also knew that more mainstream, Hollywood would, New York would, you know, the advertising community would probably be more interested in Jay Leno than they were interested in Kevin Green. They're two different audiences. They're two different targets. They're two different strategies. It's not celebrity, one size fits all. Some celebrities appeal to another kind of a business-to-business strategy. Others fall into a different category. Jay Leno definitely felt into fell into a much different category of, of co-promotional support, free support that we would get than than a sports celebrity. I knew that going in. And I, I don't know how to you know, put a valuation on one versus the other. I think it's your volume of free promotion. Your sports promoter is going to, your sports athlete is going to give you that just by the nature of morning radio and what they need that they need material, right? You know, they need something to talk about. You're not going to get that with a Jay Leno, but you are going to get studios, networks, advertising agencies paying much closer attention to a Jay Leno than they were necessarily to Kevin Green. How much fun did you have when you guys did the little surprise run in and Hogan shoves Leno Leno, and then you kick your feet up on Leno's desk? I mean, I got to tell you as a wrestling fan, even though I didn't like the idea of Leno being in a match, that was pretty fucking cool because for a long time, wrestling fans have always been well, I'm not going to say ashamed of our fandom, but it just felt like it was subculture. And to be on the fucking tonight show, it's like, holy shit, this is a big deal. It was a big deal. And again, it would have still have been a big deal if Hulk Hogan would have been a guest on Jay Leno and they would have done a typical Jay Leno kind of skit or stunt like Hulk, I'm sure did in WWF with Johnny Carson and other people, you know, we weren't the first people ever to do anything on the tonight show. That's, that's obvious. We were the first people to ever do what we did on the Tonight Show. We were the first people ever to come in and tell that. I don't want to say tell them, but we were the first people to come in and say, okay, here's the creative for your show. Here's how we're going to do this. And by the way, you have to do it the way I'm suggesting you do it or it won't work. I guarantee it. Nobody ever did that. Let's talk about. And, and, and that's, and that's, I think, and it's not my ego saying that it's, Man, wrestling achieved a level of success that enabled someone like me to come in and essentially not take over from a creative point of view, but take over a segment on the on, on one of the most successful, longest running, you know, network shows in the history of television. That's kind of a big fucking deal. So for yeah, for wrestling to get that popular, to allow that to happen for me or for anybody, was a big deal. Well, how about this? I know, you know, you've said a lot of main stuff about Meltzer and he said it about you, but here's a big compliment, my friend, despite trailing in the Monday night wars, any suggestion that WCW is the number two promotion in the United States 
particularly at least this week is laughable. WCW set an all time United States wrestling business record during the month of July, drawing $4,247,898 on 19 house shows paced by the Georgia dome show, which was not only the company gate record, but the largest gate for a non pay-per-view event ever in the United States. That's pretty fucking special, dude. It was a good time. It was, it was a great time to be a great time to be in the wrestling business, my friend. Let's talk about somebody coming into the wrestling business. We've talked about Leno and Eubanks and how they're going to be doing a match here, or at least doing some athleticism in the match. Allegedly, they're trained in Los Angeles by Diamond Dallas Page, Chris Canyon, and of all people, Eric Watts. And Leno had the surprise line of the year when he says. Leno, who is 48, is said to be completely unathletic. Well, no shit. But Eric Watts being one of the trainers, like we'd heard Chris Canyon before working on the movie Ready to Rumble, and DDP is going to be in the match, so of course that makes sense. But Eric Watts? does or Were Eric and, and Dallas tight, or how does Eric Watts get this? Of all the people I want to teach me wrestling, I think I could make a list and fill a fucking few notebooks, and Eric Watts' name would never come up. No, if Eric and I don't remember Eric being there. I mean, I I train. I mean, I was I didn't train with Jay necessarily, but I was down there while he was learning the fundamentals uh, with Page and Canyon. So if Watts was there. I don't remember it, or he played such a insignificant role in the. He might have been there as a body double. I mean, he might have been there for Standy, Page yeah. or or Canyon to say, okay, this is what we're going to do and show them. So you had Paige, for example, you could have had Paige and Eric walking through a sequence of events while Canyon is trying to, you know, talk to Jay and help him understand it and walk him through it. If, if Eric Watts was there, it wasn't there to teach anybody. He was there to provide a warm body that could react. Let's, um, let's talk about the other stuff that we haven't really addressed. And I don't want to get in the weeds here, but we just had a, I thought one of our better shows last week when we talked about the ultimate warrior coming in and his debut, let's keep that in perspective. This is in the same era where the ultimate warriors coming in and you're working on Ric Flair returning. There's a lot of irons in the fire here and we've still got to sell a pay-per-view The go home episode of nitro happens on August 3rd in Denver. It's another sellout. 170 grand Meltzer would say it's not a good show. The thing that stands out to me though, is the nitro girls are dancing Hogan Bischoff giant and Adams and two other folks, uh, come out and surround Kimberly. She slaps Eric. This is directly from the observer as Eric tried to do McMahon's angle from last week and sexually harass her. DDP runs in, but giant and Adams held him while they, uh, continue to torment Kimberly. Ultimately giant choke slams, DDP Kimberly's playing damsel in distress. I like this. I mean, we saw this in 97 with, with Savage and miss Elizabeth, but I like the idea of fans know that diamond Dallas page and Kimberly are together. This is well done. Yeah. I don't remember doing it. It sounded you know, as you were laying it out to me, it sounds like it would have been pretty good and we were all pretty hot. Relatively speaking, you know, various degrees of hot. Um, but we were all pretty successful at that point in time. So the way you laid it out, it sounded like a good scene. There's some weird stuff on this show though, with Bret Hart and Sting and the Wolfpack and 
Goldberg. I don't know that any of it necessarily makes sense, but the big story as we head towards the show is the quote unquote, legit heat between Kevin Nash, Hulk Hogan, and Eric Bischoff. Supposedly it reached a new level after this episode of nitro Melzer would write Nash apparently believes and the booking does bear this out that they're doing everything they can to make the Wolfpack look bad. And apparently Nash wasn't aware of what they were doing with sting until it happened. And he does an interview or is supposed to do an interview on the show, but apparently refuses to do it when he found out the Wolfpack was going to be the whipping boys on the show and that the members wouldn't be helping each other when they were getting beating up on and angles and that the pay-per-view match was really just to set up Goldberg and giants issue. And he'd simply be in the background to get others over. Supposedly he's even talking about wanting to quit. Of course, there is the matter of a seven figure contract that still has multiple years left on it, but we've talked about this a little bit before how unhappy was Kevin Nash creatively, maybe, maybe not unhappy, maybe frustrated is a better word as we head into this road, wild pay-per-view. It was probably as bad as it had ever gotten at that point. There was. You know, there's a lot of details about it I just don't remember because some of them were just childish, frankly. Some of them were silly. Some of them were bad communication, miscommunication, or no communication, uh, much more so than they were actual intent. But nonetheless, there was a moment, must have been about 5.30, 5 or 5.30. I think we had an hour before the show was supposed to go up live because we were at Rocky Mountain time. I think we had to go up at 8 o'clock Eastern. So we were real close to showtime, whatever time it was. And I remember, uh, in fact, I remember exactly where we were standing backstage because we were kind of where the entrance is and the travertine drapes are, whatever they're called. Um, We were standing back there. It was me, Hulk, Scott, and Kevin. And, of course, you know, I'm all of 5'10", 190 pounds, and I'm surrounded by these guys, right? So didn't have a lot of success mediating. I did the best I could as the boss, so to speak. But it had gotten really, really tense. And Hulk is not a violent guy. He's – he Hulk will avoid conflict usually. And all, he's as mellow. He's like a, he's a hippie. He's a, he's Hulk is a hippie deep down in, in, in his heart. He, he's not an aggressive. He doesn't ever threaten to kick anybody's ass. He's, he's the opposite of all of that. He avoids conflict really. But I, and I had never seen him as pissed off as he was that night, that afternoon before the show and as I'm and I don't know what the issue was I really don't I don't even know if there was I don't think anybody knew what the issue was everybody just was pissed off at each other and I remember standing in the middle of it and I'm and this is back when everybody was wearing fanny packs I looked down and Hulk's fanny pack is open and I see a knife in there and I'm thinking what the fuck you know I've heard of this thing happening and and I've heard these kinds of stories, but nah, this can't possibly be happening. And of all people, not not Hulk Hogan, but I think Hulk was 
there was enough tension, there was enough anxiety, there was enough, you know, nuanced threats and innuendo happening that Hogan came half expecting there to be shit go down. Hang on, hang on, I remember hang on. look. I remember looking in that fanny pack. Going, no, this cannot be fucking happening. Unfortunately, nothing did. But I had never seen Hulk so ready to go to war as he was on that afternoon. Ne- I'd never seen it before, and I've never seen it since. I'm I'm really struggling with what you just that bomb you just dropped on us here. Are you saying that Hogan didn't normally just carry a pocket knife? But he brought one in case Nash wanted to get Detroit on him and he'd stab a motherfucker? I didn't say that. I'm, I'm telling you exactly what I saw. I saw a, a Hulk Hogan who was uncharacteristically aggressive and, and appearing to me that he was ready to throw down in a real way, not in a, not in a, a wrestling way, not in a showmanship way, not in a bar where you're trying to impress everybody how tough you are kind of a way, in a real way. Again, I grew up in Detroit. I know when it's real. I know when it's posturing. I know when people pose and I know when they're really ready to go. I just grew up in that. I had seen all of the posturing before. I had heard people talk shit. I'd seen people act tough. I can always tell the difference. But in that moment, I was standing next to a guy who was ready to go because he believed he didn't have a choice. And when I looked out, when I was standing next to the guy, I looked down and I saw him in his fanny pack. I saw a blade in there. I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be bad. This can't possibly be getting to this level. Can I tell you what was going through Hulk's mind? No. Can I tell you that he never carried a pocket knife before or a knife? It wasn't just a pocket knife. Can I tell you that he never carried a knife before until that night? No, I can't say that either. He may have. Maybe a coincidence, but it didn't feel like one at the moment. My God, uh, I, do me a favor. If you're listening to this show right now, go to Twitter and tweet. I have to say at 83 weeks is my favorite podcast ever. I can't believe that we just got that detail. That's unbelievable. And I can't wait to see what the news sites do with it tomorrow. Yeah. I can't wait till Hulk gives me a call and say, brother, <laughs> fuck, brother, <laughs> fuck, brother, K-fabe. that doesn't work for me, brother. <laughs> I got to call him. I'm going to call him and tell him as soon as I hang up here. So he hears it from me first. Right. That's Let's, always the, the, isn't that always the rest, best approach when you're faced with something like this? Yes. You know, tell it first. It. Yep. Get in front of it. All right. So let's, let's get through this. Cause I got a phone call to make. <laughs> All right. One more piece of news and then we'll get to the show. What a long show we've got. I hope you guys are digging it. By the way, you could have got it early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. Uh, Meltzer would write, how's this for a mind blower? Kevin Wackles, the former nails and John Nord, the former, uh, berserker are working on $150,000 per year contracts here. What the fuck, Eric? Did you really just hire nails because he attacked Vince? I mean, we, we never saw him. Did we? You saw him a few times I mean, with, we didn't yeah. keep him and we didn't keep him long and $150,000 was kind of like an opening rate for a guy with some experience who was going to do TV matches. Don't make it sound like I was paying him like a fucking, you know, astronaut or a corporate attorney. He was a, he was a entry, you know, $75,000 was power plant money. So I'm not, I'm not arguing any of that. And I know that the nails did some stuff for you with sting and they called him the prisoner and all that, but that was years prior. It feels like years prior and the idea that he's still here in 98 is like what but 
It's one of yeah, the most. I don't, I, I don't remember if Kevin, you know, kind of came in and out. I mean, I don't think he stayed. He may have. I don't know. Somebody could pro- probably prove me wrong on this. I just I don't have the records at my fingertips, but I, I do know that I do believe Kevin had kind of come in and come out a couple different times. And again, the, the 150 grand was like entry level money for any talent working on TV. I'm just saying, hypothetically, if I. If all I had to do was take a swing at Vince McMahon and I was guaranteed three grand a week for life, I'm flying to Stanford tomorrow. That's just, that's yeah, but that's that, but that's not why, I mean, that's, that's an easy thing to say. And it, I guess, depending on your perspective and inside knowledge, you would be fair to assume that it's, it's a cute little thought, but that's not the reason why I brought him in. I didn't bring him in because he took a swing at Vince McMahon. That's stupid. I worked with Kevin in AWA. I was familiar with Kevin. There was a certain type of character that Kevin could play. Um, and there was a role for Kevin, a, a, a very small role, but there was a role for a guy like Kevin. Um, but I certainly didn't bring him in because he punched Vince McMahon in the mouth or attempted to, or whatever that story is. All right, let's get to road wild. This show was, uh, panned as you might imagine, 67.2% thumbs down. 15.7% thumbs in the middle, 17.2% thumbs up. Uh, it's nearly unanimous. Jericho and Hooventude steal the show. According to the readers of the wrestling observer, they win the best match poll. Steve McMichael and Brian Adams, unbelievably win the worst match poll. Who would have thought a Steve McMichael match wasn't very good. Uh, here we are. Um, Meltzer called this concept road wild the car wreck of wrestling pay-per-view shows a yearly disaster waiting to happen and this year's version was by far the worst of the three now you've just recently watched 96 97 and 98 what do you think was this the worst of the three so far i i think in some respects it was the best of the three that we've done up to that point now, as I said at the beginning of this, I'm kind of embarrassed at the quality of the, the matches and the story that wasn't obvious when I watched this pay-per-view this morning. So that, that part of me is embarrassed. Now, the business part of me feels a little differently. If you go back and look at this crowd, if you go to WWE Network and look at you know Sturgis 96 and even Sturgis 97 – and compare the crowd and the crowd reactions to what you see in this pay-per-view. I was pretty excited to see that the crowd was much more animated. The first one of these that we covered, we talked about the fact that the wrestler, the, the, the audience that was there, the people that were in Sturgis anyway, and just happened to ride up in their Harleys to watch a wrestling match. Didn't really know the characters, certainly didn't know the stories, generally had an idea what professional wrestling was, but it was just something of that the the responses that we got were consistent with people who were kind of ambivalent about the characters in the story by the second year that changed a little bit by this year it changed a lot you saw a lot of people in the crowd the first of all the crowd was a lot bigger take a look at some of the aerial shots that you didn't see in the first one and the second one because the aerial shots were less than impressive because it really didn't have that big of a crowd but by the by 98 we were starting to get we were starting to jam it up pretty good meaning jam up the town and we we had a good crowd and not only were they a good sized crowd but they were into the story 
you'll see MWO signs being held up, you know, 40, 50, 60 feet back, you know, amongst all the bikers that were there watching. So they were not only there just to see something different in Sturgis now, they were there because they wanted to be there. And the energy that came with them was palpable and, and much different than than on the previous events. So business-wise, you know, we were now entertaining potential sponsors at Sturgis instead of putting Sturgis on, hoping to be able to have a conversation with sponsors. So that had clearly evolved. Uh, right. Oh God, I'm, I'm not going to say it because I could be wrong about this. I may be conflating dates, but you know, I think this was one of the pay-per-views that we were really starting to have some serious conversations with EA sports, which by the way, paid WCW a $10 million advance for a licensing deal. So again, not to keep going back to your buddy, Dave Meltzer, but you can have opinions about what you think is successful and not successful. But when you're not really there and involved and don't see all of the things that were ha positive things that were happening as a result, specifically of Sturgis, you, your opinion isn't really very valuable. And there was a lot of business that was going on because of Sturgis in 98 that really mattered to the bottom line. It just wasn't obvious to people who weren't you know, in the WCW office on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's, uh, let's talk about the first show, the first match here. It's Ming and Barbarian, four minutes, 48 seconds. Of course, we've got a big biker crowd. So we're going to start with some sumo spots. Uh, Meltzer would say <laughs> it must've looked like Richard Simmons in a street fight to the bikers. Uh, eventually barbarian loads up his boot before he can throw the kick Ming clamps on the tongue and death grip. And after the match, Hugh Morris runs in him, barbarian and Jimmy Hart start to beat on Ming. Ming starts to make his own comeback. And then ultimately Jim Duggan shows up to clear house with a two by four. And Meltzer says, not only did nobody care about Duggan's save, but there wasn't even a crowd reaction at all to Duggan's music which usually garners the easiest mindless pop because it constitutes American patriotism. He gave it a dud, but Ming wins. You saw it this week for the first time in 22 years. What'd you think? Well, let me break that down again. I'm, I want to apologize to everybody listening to this. Cause I know so many of you get tired of me responding to things that Dave Meltzer wrote or said, but in this case, what am I supposed to do? I have to, right? That was the question. That's the reference point that we're dealing with here. So let me break his response or his purview of this pay-per-view down a little bit. First of all, Dave makes the assumption that he understands how bikers think. Let that sit in for a minute. Um, number one, who do you think those quote unquote bikers are that show up in Sturgis every year? Are they this monolithic part of subculture that all identify themselves as bikers and all kind of have the same lifestyle and all look at the world the same way? Are they kind of like all a bunch of, you know, motorcycle club wannabes that dress up like badasses and show up at Sturgis and pretend that they're in a, in a motorcycle club, kind of like Meltzer pretends he knows about the wrestling business? Or 
are they a bunch of people ages 25 to 49 on average that have a higher amount of disposable income than the average person because these doctors, lawyers, engineers, restaurant owners, in one case, a guy by the name of Dick Stevenson, who I met at Sturgis, who owns a chain of hospitals called Cancer Treatment Centers of America, by the way, who ended up being a very close friend of the families. Yeah, these are the people that go to Sturgis. Dave, they're not bikers. They're doctors, lawyers, education people. They're fucking corporate airline pilots, people that can afford to take two weeks off of work every year and drive all the way across the country on your 50 or 60 or $80,000 motorcycle while their wives and friends and family are following them in motorhomes across the country. That's who showed up at Sturgis. As a whole, if you go to Sturgis, well, you can't go there now. You can go there now, but everybody's left. But if you were in Sturgis last weekend, you see a bunch of the roughest, nastiest, gnarliest looking people who probably are making more than $150,000 a year. That's who goes to Sturgis. Now, you have you know, a, a, a portion of the people that go to Sturgis that do not fall into that category. And you do have a small portion of the people that go to Sturgis that probably fall into a category of people that you would assume if you watch Sons of Anarchy, okay? A small, small, small percentage of those people. The reason that beer companies and Dodge trucks and Chevy trucks and Ford trucks and everybody that's ever made alcohol show up and spend millions upon millions upon millions of dollars just to promote locally over a 10-day window is because it's the highest concentration of high disposable income people that, that like to play. Well, who else would you want to advertise to? So... I will tell you that the response that I saw when I watched it back this morning, when Duggan hit the ropes was his two by four. Yummy I mean, Conrad, you go back and watch it. You tell me when, when this is over, send me a text. Just watch that little clip. Did they respond to his music? No, they didn't. Would that be because maybe they're outside and maybe the music just doesn't have the same impact as it does when you're in an arena? Or maybe they didn't care all that much about the music. But give me, tell me how you think, Conrad, or you, if you're listening to this show, go to WWE Network. If you have it, it's not going to cost you a nickel. Go to go it. Check it out. Look at this pay-per-view, Surges 1998. Go to the opening match. Look at the reaction the crowd gave Hacksaw Jim Duggan when he was clearing house with a 2 by 4 and you tell me it didn't matter to the bikers. Bullshit. Next matchup is Public Enemy beating Disco Inferno and Alex Wright in 15 minutes and 27 seconds. Um, Tokyo or Magnum Tokyo or Tokyo Magnum, whatever. He's here too. Uh, it gets a negative one star. I don't know. A Public Enemy match on pay-per-view for 15 minutes. What'd you think? Yeah. Do over. <laughs> it just wasn't right. I mean, it looked. It, this falls into the to the context that I put this show in at the very very beginning. It was just poorly conceived, not a lot of great story, not a lot of real meat on the bone. It was, I, and, I, and I want to be sure people don't think I was thinking this, but it was as if we phoned this one in because there just wasn't enough thought gone into it. And this is an example of that. Next up, it's a Falls Count Anywhere in Sturgis match. 
Perry Saturn's going to win a three-way over Raven and Canyon, 12 minutes and 26 seconds. They're going to work hard. There's a couple of cool spots, but I don't know. Something about this just didn't click. Saturn uses the Death Valley driver on Raven after Horace Boulder accidentally helped Saturn score the pin. Star in three quarters. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Two hardcore matches back-to-back? Too much of the same thing? Yeah, we. Yeah, that's what I talked to you about earlier when I mentioned this specific match where you have one hardcore match after another hardcore match. It's like, eh. And, and aside from that, if you look at, if you didn't, if you were 1998 and you didn't know anything about wrestling, you'd never watched any wrestling in your life ever before until this card, and you looked at Raven and Saturn and Canyon, you would think they were three different versions of the same person. It was just. Oh, God, I'm about to say something I know I'm going to regret. So I'm going to hurt people's feelings and piss them off, and people are going to misunderstand me, and my quote is going to get mistweeted and twisted, but here we go. I think one of the problems that I have with many of the characters that we see today, too many, is this kind of ratty-looking, dark, dirty vibe character raven is a perfect example here you know raven based this character on like the fucking grunge pearl jam peak during the late whatever it was mid 90s i guess that's where this just twisted up dark miserable grunge like character kind of first made its way into professional wrestling at least as far as i remember I'm sure it did before, but in WCW, Raven brought it. Saturn brought it. It wasn't necessarily Canyon's thing, but he, in, in this particular case, he fell into it. That character, that, that that presentation of that dark, grunge, angry, miserable fuck character that Raven represented. I'm not saying Raven was, but that's the character that he, you know, broken character that he brought to the table is everywhere today. I see it too much. I see people doing the same character today. It's 25 years old. Get fresh. Come up with something different. And and, and it didn't work in 98. I don't think it really works today. There, to, to a certain degree, there is a portion of the audience that will identify with that. But if you're not, if you're in the business trying to appeal to the smallest part of the audience, Probably you're in the wrong business. Next up, we've got Ray Mysterio and Psychosis. 13 minutes and 38 seconds. Uh, the deal here is the winner gets a shot at the cruiserweight title. It only gets two stars. The finish may be a little botched. It's a springboard hurricane rana. Psychosis has a little trouble getting all the way over. Winds up landing on his head. So that's not the desired outcome, but it does look pretty damn devastating. And the fans are really getting with this match. Meltzer gave it two stars. What do you think? I thought it was better than the match that we saw last time we covered Surges. I think we covered 96 last time. Um, and I think Ray had a knee injury in that particular match. So at least, you know, he was able to be more uh, more himself in, in terms of Ray's style. We saw a little bit, a lot better action than we saw with Ray in the previous Surges show. But Psychosis w- was a little choppy. His timing was off, and there were some bot spots in there. Overall, I thought it was a good match. I don't think it was a great match as far as Ray Mysterio goes. 
or, or, or psychosis, but it was a, it, it was a sufficiently good match for what it was. Stevie Ray is defending the TV title for his brother Booker because Booker's injured. Yes, that's the thing. Stevie pins Chavo Jr. to retain the TV title. Two minutes, 38 seconds. Meltzer says, I guess the new rule for undercard titles is if someone is injured, the title reverts to the next of kin. Boy, that's, I know we had a whole prop discussion at the beginning of the show. We don't have to revisit it, but this is not good. And, and really, let, let me, let me, let, let me interrupt right here and, and put a little sh- finer point on your point. This is just fucking horrible. Yeah. This was just stupid. My bad. I let it happen. Whatever criticism was levied against this match and the way it was presented is deserved. I hate to admit it, but I will when I have to. And in this case, I kind of have to is horrible. Let's talk about the, um, the match itself. Chavo's going to run around for the majority of this match. He's just running from Stevie Ray. And one of the announcers says, Hey, this actually is a good strategy because he'll tire the bigger man out because Stevie is chasing him. Uh, and then someone else says, no, Stevie won't get tired. Finally, Chavo starts throwing punches, which Ray just laughs off. And then Ray slapjacks him negative one star total squash match on pay-per-view. Yep. <laughs> Next up, we get Rick Steiner. We're in- there's nothing to say, right? I mean, it's the squash. It no, I mean, what, I mean, look, I, you know, I, I, I started the show out by beating myself up. I, I flogged myself halfway through the process, and here we are towards the end of the show, and I'm inclined to beat myself up again, but I, I'm going to take a pass on that. I think I beat myself up enough for this one. You have. Next up, we get Rick Steiner coming out in jeans and cowboy boots, saying he's not ready to wrestle. He came out to wrestle Scott, despite it being made clear on Thunder that a few days prior, uh, the match wasn't taking place. And, uh, it is funny to see Scott here with an oxygen mask laid out as if it's near death and then gets off his deathbed. This is a fun little skit, but it's supposed to be a pay-per-view match with Rick versus Scott. And instead we don't get that at all. We get this silly angle storyline. It's just, I don't know. It would have been good for, it would have been good for TV, not for pay-per-view. We agree. Next up, the barn burner, Steve McMichael and Brian Adams. They go six minutes and 32 seconds, but it's written in the observer. Originally, this match was scheduled for 17 minutes, which is hard to imagine. Get the second. fuck out of that. No, there's no way. <laughs> no way. Come on. No way. All right. I want you to go watch this. You know, I just made a recommendation earlier for a great match on Nitro. Well, go watch Steve McMichael and Brian Adams. Meltzer says this is the worst match on the show, but perhaps the worst match of his entire lifetime. After one of the most messed up spots you'll ever see, McMichael delivered, if this was the idea, the worst DDT in known history. Who knows what was supposed to happen next that it didn't as both guys went for a move and they both just stood there and froze. Adams picked McMichael up for a pile driver, but McMichael's legs barely grazed the ref who was then knocked unconscious. Vincent's went to hit McMichael with a chair, but he ducks and Adams got it. McMichael punches Vincent, gives a tombstone pile driver to Adams. And then the ref is revived to count the fall. 
It doesn't get much worse than this negative two stars. At this point, you had to be looking for a hole to hide in. Fuck. I'm looking for one now. Yeah. Just covering it. <laughs> That's, you know what I think? Conrad, look, you, you got to make chicken salad out of chicken shit, right? Yep. We all know that. So I think the way to make chicken salad out of this one is when Mrs. B and I come to Huntsville soon, I suggest, you know, once we get business taken care of and we get back in the house and decide to sit around and watch something on television, we all eat a fistful of fucking gummies, get some Doritos and watch this match when we're high. Cause then I think it would be fun. Other than that, it's very, very painful. Let's, uh, let's remind everybody. This is not a terrible show. If you consider the next match, so you just saw one of the worst matches ever. Well, here's one of the best matches that you'll see in 1998. Juventud Guerrero wins the cruiserweight title from Chris Jericho in 16 minutes and 24 seconds. Dean Malenko is your referee. The finish is a thing of beauty. It's pretty remarkable. Juventud is going to run at Malenko. Malenko is going to propel him in midair into a Frankensteiner off the top rope onto Jericho for the pin. And of course, after the match, Malenko decks Jericho three and a half stars. Jericho is the perfect type heel for this crowd. I think he almost steals the show with his performance and, and he didn't go over, but he got over Hooventude's your new cruiserweight champ, man. It's easy to beat up on you for some of the weird creative and, and questionable creative, but Lord, did you bless us with a great cruiserweight division here? I love this match. Yeah, one hour, 54 minutes, and 41 seconds is when you see them go into this finish. I love the finish here. This is an example. This is a perfect example of what didn't happen often enough in WCW matches. This is a match where the finish, I think, was so much better than the match itself. And the match itself was outstanding. There was nothing I didn't like about the match, but I loved the finish so much that the match pales in comparison. And when you're talking about Chris Jericho and Juventud Guerrero, that's a fucking big statement, right? But I stand by it. This is a finish. When I saw it this morning, getting ready for the show, I didn't see it coming. It came from out of nowhere, and it made so much sense, and it was so smart. It fit the story. It was a finish that I hadn't seen before. Or if I saw it before, I didn't remember it. This felt, this was so good. So good. The match was great, but the finish, I think, was just a thing of beauty and it was executed perfectly. Next up is something that is not so well executed. Goldberg is going to win a nine man battle royal featuring eight members of the NWO. So it's Wolfpack versus NWO Hollywood, but Goldberg beats them all. Seven minutes and 58 seconds. I mean, this even includes a moment where giant's going to choke slam Goldberg, but he's just going to pop right back up, spear the giant and deliver the jackknife and pin him clean in the middle. Meltzer says it was a good finish for the moment, but it made absolutely no sense from a booking standpoint to do that finish on a pay-per-view at this time. This was the first match where the audience seemed to have a vague idea of who the wrestlers were. Although none got big pops, they seemed to at least get the reaction as being recognizable stars. Goldberg's reaction was way down compared to usual for the same reason everyone's was, but also because it's outdoors, it's harder to pipe the fake chance in. 
and there was little in the way of chance for him during the show or during the match. This whole thing, he's your world champ, and he's in a nine-man battle royal with eight members of the NWO. What the fuck? Did you know that the number one hit song on August 8th, 1998 <laughs> is The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica? I didn't know that. Do now. want to talk about the Goldberg battle royal nope isn't that <laughs> obvious <laughs> next up we've got uh, ddp in our main event teaming with the host of the tonight show jay leno to take on hulk hogan and eric bischoff 14 minutes and 34 seconds uh Meltzer uh, couldn't help himself and he says Bischoff was noticeably heavier than at Starcade to the point he wouldn't even take his shirt off. Uh 1434, you watch this back. There is that silly moment where uh, Leno takes control of Hulk Hogan in the ring and they're posing for all the flash bulbs. If you had it to do over again, was that a good call? I think at some point somewhere Heenan said Boy, that felt like the fucking worst decision WCW could make. And I'm sorry, re- repeat that. What what was the worst decision we could ever make? Well, I think just the exposing the business deal. You've got Hulk Hogan, who is this bona fide super draw. I mean, he is a cartoon character, for God's sake. He's a pop culture icon, the person most synonymous with the industry. And we've got a wimpy, big-chinned comedian giving him the business on pay-per-view. Uh, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't disagree with that perspective on one hand, on the other hand, let's be honest. Does anybody, did anybody think that Jay Leno was really no able to compete with Hulk Hogan? Do people watch it just to be entertained? Did people watch it just to see what would happen with Jay Leno in the ring? Do people watch it just for fun? If the answer to that is yes, then I think a lot of people walked away from this satisfied. But for the people who 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 look at wrestling differently and who either because they want to believe themselves that they know what's best for the business or they want others to believe that or they just have a particular way of watching wrestling that they prefer, those people were going to be disappointed. But did, did it hurt WCW's overall business? Absolutely not. I would argue it enhanced WCW's overall business because of the perception that we had within the industry of the entertainment industry, which is just as important sometimes is the opinion of a hardcore obsessive compulsive wrestler fan so uh, it just you know it's subjective some some do some don't some people liked it some people didn't some people thought it was the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to the wrestling business i kind of beg to differ the wrestling business is a business that has been constantly subjected to the worst ideas ever have ever happened in the wrestling business and it still carries on so you know we made money we we enhanced our position with 
with Madison Avenue. We enhanced our position with studios and networks in Hollywood. And people had the vast majority of the people, including those who were all, by the way, well, not all, who many of whom were carrying NWO signs and signs in support of their favorite wrestlers who did know who their favorite wrestlers were. And oh, by the way, we didn't regularly pipe in music, at least not in 96 and 97 and 98, because we didn't have to, which was part of the little narrative that was implied there. None of that, none of that was true. It, the event was what it was. Hardcore wrestling fans hated it. Average viewer probably dug it. More importantly, from a, from a business to business point of view, it, it took us to another level. And, and for that, I'm proud, not so proud of the quality of the content, but from a, from a business strategy perspective and a growth perspective, still proud of it. Here's the finish. Bischoff begged off, but did an eye rake. Leno did a low blow, then threw two terrible looking punches and was blown up again. Hogan accidentally punched Bischoff and Page clotheslines Hogan over the top to set up the finish. The finish was supposed to be to have Leno using the diamond cutter, a relatively simple move to learn on Bischoff, but they didn't trust him to do it and instead had Kevin Eubanks do it. And Leno scored the pin on Bischoff star and a quarter. Is this the worst match you've ever been a part of personally? Mm, well, I haven't been into that. I haven't been involved in that many matches, so it shouldn't be this difficult. But then again, every one of them that I was involved with was less than stellar from a <laughs> wrestling point of view. So it makes it hard. Um, probably. No, first of all, I don't think it was that bad. First of all, I'm not a wrestler, right? right? Right. Never pretended to be one. Never wanted to give anybody the impression I was one. And and I was extremely limited as a result of that. So now you got me, who is a non-wrestler, in the ring with Jay Leno, who's just as much of a non-wrestler. I may have been a little bit more athletic than Jay Leno, but not a lot by that point in my life. And Dave was well to point out that I wasn't willing to take my shirt off because I'd gained a chunk or two. Um, But again, it wasn't there to be a wrestling match. It was a skit. It was a stunt. It was just designed to be fun. So it's hard for me to go, well, from a technical wrestling point of view, of course, from a technical wrestling point of view, it was the shits and probably the one of the worst I've ever been in, largely because of my own lack of abilities, <laughs> as well as Jay's. But it, to a degree, it worked. It served its purpose. The show's not over. The show ends with a Travis Trick concert that went more than the promised 30 minutes. Um, Meltzer would say, Tritt's management held up WCW at the event for his money in advance, a bonus of three motorcycles and a Learjet ride home, or he threatened he wouldn't perform. Jesus Christ, Eric, did Travis Tritt really hold you up? No. Where did that? I I don't know where that came from. Okay. That's so ridiculous. That's so fucking ridiculous. Listen, we, uh, we've panned this, we've shit all over it, but it's important to mention it got 322,000 buys on pay-per-view, a 0.93 buy rate. And there's a lot of folks over the years, even these days, who would be tickled with 322,000 people buying their wrestling pay-per-view. But to compare and contrast, we have to acknowledge the obvious. 
This is WCW's August effort. Meanwhile, the WWF puts on the biggest SummerSlam in history. It's on, it's on top with Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin, Highway to Hell, and Madison Square Garden. They did more than double the amount of buys you guys did, pulling in 700,000 buys. Overall, would you say this was a failure, a success, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? I just did some quick math. Let me let me do this again. What, so we drew three hundred thirty thousand buys, right? Three twenty-two. I'm gonna call, okay. I'm gonna call it three twenty just for round numbers. So I'm just doing this math as we're doing it. So three hundred twenty thousand buys, and I know you don't remember this, but I'm guessing the price point on this paper. How much was it? Twenty-nine ninety-five. Okay, times. So yeah, we only made four million eight hundred thousand dollars on this day. That's pretty fucking miserable, right? Well, you know, if you would have sold tickets, you could have passed five million. God damn it! I know we only made, and that's, you know, and that's on a, you know, we made fifteen dollars a pay per view. At this point, we were in a fifty fifty split with a pay per view provider. So based on three hundred twenty thousand buys, our our net on that would have been fifteen dollars. Um, we only made four million eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that was a dismal fucking failure. And as far as any comparison to SummerSlam, SummerSlam was a tent pole event for WWF. Uh, Sturgis Road Wild was the third year, so and and growing. So, you know, if you're going to make comparisons, if we're going to talk about context, you got to go all the way with it. So do I consider a third year, which is a brand new pay-per-view, who netted $4.8 million on a Sunday evening a bad time? Mm, sorry. It is funny, though, that the narrative has been forever that this was a loss, you know? And it's not. But I do want to ask one, one more question, then I'll let you go, because Lord knows we've went four damn hours today. Why Travis Tritt? Why not? I mean, how does it? I, I don't know why. I, uh, he he may have been available, you know, during Sturgis. I mean, Chris Jericho just played Sturgis for right. crying out loud. Um, you know, for that ten days during Sturgis, every major rock country band is coming through. I mean, from ZZ Top to Kid Rock to you name it. Um, if you're at the top of your particular rock and roll or country game, you're probably playing or have played, played or will play soon Sturgis. Um, more than likely he was there. He was probably playing at one of the other, mm. you know, they have campgrounds. They call them campgrounds. They're not like the campgrounds you'd see at Yellowstone national park, by the way, there are campgrounds. <laughs> Oh, the stories I could tell you, but these are campgrounds where people bring their motorhomes and their motorcycles and their tents, and they, you, you'll put eight, nine thousand people in this big area, and all night long, there is every form of entertainment going on you can imagine. Not the least of which is usually a band. Or, or two or three during the course of an evening, big headline name brands, and they kind of rotate around. So my guess is Travis Tritt was there because he was probably at one of the other campgrounds playing and he was able to double up and it was good for us and it made our sponsors happy and off we went. No, no more than that. No, no, no more analysis or creative 
perspective than just he was there. He was available. He was a big name. He's country. Wrestling fans typically like country. These people here on Vice watching are probably going to get a kick out of it. Added value. Let's do it. One last question, and then I really will let you go. This comes to us from Michael. We let you guys ask Eric questions over on Twitter. It's at 83 weeks. We're coming back to you next week with No Surrender 2010. This is a TNA pay-per-view from September 5th in the Impact Zone. The main event is Mr. Anderson and D'Angelo De Niro. We've also got Jeff Hardy and Kurt Angle. We've got AJ and Tommy Dreamer. We've got Jarrett and Joe teaming up with Nash and Sting. Abyss and Rhino are in there. Douglas and Sabu. Uh, Doug, Doug Williams, rather. The Motor City Machine Guns and Generation Me. How about that? That's going to be badass. Uh, we're talking about that next week. If you've got a question, you can ask it over at 83 weeks. This week's question, the best one, the one I'm picking for us to go home with is Michael wants to know, did you specifically request for Tony Schiavone to dress like a dipshit or did he do that all by himself? On this, on this pay-per-view? Yeah. He looked just like me. He was wearing a black leather jacket, just like mine. What do you mean dressed like a dipshit? But when you wear it, you look cool. He looks like a fucking dipshit. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll buy that. Um, no, I just wanted to make myself look good by comparison. Well, you're, that's why the reason we hang out, I make you look good by comparison. Well, I know you make me look smart by comparison. <laughs> Hopefully one of these things will make me look rich by comparison. Well, I'm, I'm good with it. And we listen, we appreciate you guys hanging in there. Uh, I, I don't know why, man, but I feel like me and you are in a rhythm right now. I absolutely loved our warrior episode last week. We got very good feedback with it. And I thought today's show was a great show, man. We didn't, uh, we got way deep in the weeds. There was a lot to cover. There's a lot more to uncover to talk about the uneasiness going on behind the scenes with Kevin Nash and Hulk Hogan. I'm sure we'll talk about that more in the future, but this was a fun show, man. Thanks for making so much time for us to get together and do this one today. I had a blast so far. This has been the highlight of my day. It's only 11 o'clock in the morning and I'm an optimist, but if nothing else better happens today, today will have been a good day. Cause I had a blast doing this show with you. Guess who's on their way to my house right now. As we speak, who's that dipshit, Tony Schiavone. Hey, tell Tony, I said, hi, I'll do it. I'm sure we'll uh, FaceTime you later and say many uh, stupid things to each other. And we hope that you guys will listen to the stupid things we're talking about next week. When we cover TNA from 2010, no surrender is the pay-per-view. That's our topic next week. Don't forget. If you haven't already check out adfreeshows.com. mean tweet receipts where Eric is on video responding to some of the shitty things you've tweeted him over the years at E Bischoff. Uh, that's going to be live at adfreeshows.com and another edition of Eric fires back. And this is without question, our favorite piece of, uh, of business that we do at adfreeshows.com. Whenever we do a poll for the people who are supporting us over at adfreeshows.com, it's not close. Eric fires back is number one with a bullet. Find out who gets the bullet this week at adfreeshows.com. He is at E Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Get your 83 weeks gear at ericbischoff.com and check out boxagimmicks.com, the official 83 week store with new items added weekly. There's no better time to say I love you, and the most hated jeweler in America is at it again. You've heard us say I hate stevensinger.com, and you've heard us rave about his famous roses. But Steven Singer has been selling diamonds and bridal jewelry for four decades. Whether you have someone or something to celebrate, Steven is there for you. Ready to take the next step? Steven has a ready for love engagement ring collection 
that is no hassle, no risk, expertly picked engagement rings that are ready to go. Don't worry, Stephen won't let you mess this up. He's been selling online for over two decades, but he's recently kicked everything up a notch to better service friends and guests online. He has real expert jewelers on call to help you find the perfect ring or gift through new virtual video appointments, calls, texts, chats, or emails, all with extended hours. On top of that, he offers the best guarantee in the business with a full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee and free shipping. Interest-free financing is available online, too, and that's just the beginning. Gifts that say I love you every single day, backed with decades of experience in the comfort of your own home, it's easy. Just go to IHateStevenSinger.com. Fast, free, and safe shipping. Steven Singer Jewelers, that's IHateStevenSinger.com. I've been telling you for a long time that SaveWithConrad.com can save you money, but don't take my word for it. What made you come to Save With Conrad? I've refinanced with Conrad before, about three years ago, and then the mortgage company sent me a letter wanting to refinance me again, so I reached out to Conrad and asked him about it, and he said, no, no, we can do you a much better job than that. I wouldn't even consider listening to anybody else without talking to Conrad first. So um, how was it working with the team this go-around? Oh, they were great. He told me exactly right up front what he needed, made it real easy for me to uh, upload my forms, sign off on my papers. He kept, uh, he kept in contact with me the whole time. For someone that was so far away from me in a different part of the country, I couldn't have got better service if he'd been right next door to me. Very cool. How much money was Save with Conrad able to save you? $100,800. Wow. I think, um, my, my, rate, my rate went down over, over 2%. We, we saved eight years off of my loan. And I did the math on that. That 96 months are going to save me $100,800. What would you tell all the podcast listeners about Save With Conrad? Don't be scared to ask. The worst thing that could happen is that he can't help you. And he wouldn't jerk you around. And he tell you right up front that he couldn't help you. Uh, the first time he helped me out was rebuilding credit. The second time he helped me out, I had excellent credit. So take the time. It doesn't take 10, 15 minutes to, to apply. Uh, uh, he'll answer your questions. He doesn't make you feel like an idiot when you ask the question. He really enjoys educating you on how to save, how to save, he wants you to save money. Um, he wants you to have a better life. So what are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. Even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But because we're licensed in more than 40 states, we can help more families than ever before. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Oh, and did I mention you could skip your next two house payments? Hurry to SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lenders. Woo! Available right now on AdFreeShows.com. Tony fires back. Heenan's right about one thing on that. Knowledge is power. Uh, and I, I had plenty of knowledge that he was drunk many of our shows. So, um, and I never talked about that, did I? Nope. No, no I never talked about that. I never talked. Uh, ask anybody, everybody now that Heenan is dead, uh, everybody now, uh, you know, elevates him to uh, a sainthood standard. And with his work, I agree. I, I agree. I, there was nobody better than Bobby Heenan. But as a, but as a person, he was, he was not a good person. So what are you waiting for? There is plenty of bonus content at some very affordable price points over at adfreeshows.com 
regardless of who you're a fan of, Tony, Eric, JR, Bruce, or Arn, or even Conrad, there is tons of stuff there that you won't find anywhere else. Go ahead and head over and take a look at it. I think you'll see I'm right. Adfreeshows.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.